This is Jason Holleran. I proudly served for 33 years, culminating as the Deputy Commandant at West Point. Put this on your calendar. World War II weekend inside Old Bethpage Village Restoration on Long Island. Scores of operational vintage armor in formation May 18th and 19th. Nassau County Executive Bruce Blakeman invites you to join him in saluting America's greatest generation and all those who have worn the uniform in defense of our freedoms. That's May 18th and 19th, presented by the Museum of American Armor. This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Now, here's Frank Morano. around you being more rude have you noticed and i'll call an epidemic of rudeness taking place well if you have you're not the only one listen to this apparently and it's very difficult to cover subjects like this because We tend to see what happened yesterday through the prism of nostalgia, and we tend to think that everything that happened yesterday was better. But rude behavior is on the rise, according to a new study published in the Harvard Business Review. Not only does incivility – now, I am always on my uh, – my antennae is always up. And I endeavor not to be rude to anybody. Even when I talk to a stranger on the phone, I will, you know, like when I was trying to get my ATM working on uh, my ATM card working on Saturday, they'll answer the phone and say, oh, blank, bank. This is Beth speaking. How may I help you? Hi, Beth. How are you? And what I do when I talk to somebody is I actually wait until they answer how they are. And then they'll say, I'm fine. How are you doing? I'm doing well, too. So I am always on the lookout for trying not to be rude to anybody. And that is one of the things that, honestly, I pride myself on is I try to be unfailingly polite to people. Because not only does incivility harm those on the front lines of the customer service business, transportation, retail, restaurants, education, healthcare, but it also hurts those businesses and institutions where it happens. Christine Porath, a professor of management at Georgetown University who researches this issue, has studied this at length. And she surveyed 2,000 people and customers across more than 25 industries globally. Listen to this. 73% of them said it was not unusual for customers to behave badly. 73%. That is up from 61% just 10 years ago. 10 years ago is nothing. And we've already seen a jump in customers behaving badly from 61% to 73%. 66% said bad customer behavior towards other customers is more common than it was five years ago. They say stress is playing the biggest role here. The pandemic, the economy, war, divisive politics, the changing nature of work, 
and continued uncertainty are all taking a toll, according to Christine Porth. The thing that I would add there also is that by the time you actually get to speak with a person, particularly if you're doing business by phone, you've had to speak with three or four machines, which could involve using an automated system that doesn't work half the time. So Christine Porth also points to weakening community and workplace connections as well as disconnects wrought by technology. That's basically what I'm talking about, this disconnect wrought by technology. But isn't this always the case? Isn't everything, isn't the decline in civility the same thing as the decline in everything else? Isn't it a byproduct of the same thing, which is weakening community and workplace connections? We're seeing neighborhoods... Destroy it. We're seeing neighborhoods exist only as geographic locations and not as the bedrock of a neighborhood social fabric. We're seeing workplaces defined as not as places that you get together with colleagues, both at work and after work. We're seeing it as places where you connect with your colleagues on a Zoom meeting. I, if, if there is nothing that I can get through to this audience... And it's really the only serious thing that I repeatedly harp on. It's that we need to connect with one another as people more. Matt Blaze has been very open about the fact that he doesn't even know his neighbors. He has one neighbor that he thinks he knew, but that person either moved away or died. And forget about it. He has no interest in in making a connection with any of his other neighbors. And that weakening community is leading, according to the research, to this uptick in rudeness. It makes sense. And if there's one thing, you know, a caller maybe about six months ago asked me a question, if you could teach your son one thing, what would it be? And the thing that most immediately came to my mind was that you're not better than anybody. You're, you're certainly no worse than anybody, but you're not better than anybody. And you shouldn't think that because of uh, what you've done or what, who you are or where you live, that you're superior to anybody. Uh, be it a you come across a CEO or a janitor, a sanitation worker or a junkie, you're not better than anybody. You are equal to anyone. The other thing that I would really love to stress to my son is that it's so important to be polite to others. And the research here in this Harvard Business Review piece shows that rudeness, much like the common cold, is contagious. It spreads quickly. Anyone can be a carrier and getting infected, according to Christine Porath, doesn't take much. And I believe that. You know why? Because when you're in a workplace or a uh, restaurant or in any kind of an environment, a neighborhood where everybody's polite to one another and everyone's smiling and greeting one another and treating each other well That rubs off, and you want to contribute in that way. But if you're in a workplace where everyone is cold to one another, where everyone is short with one another, everyone is curt with one another, I think it takes a a rare person to be the one person that comes in there and acts super polite to everybody. You almost feel like you're not being cool if you're the one polite person in a workplace where everyone is rude. I have to tell you, We've covered a wide variety of trends on this show, trends related to religion, 
trends related to family life, trends related to neighborhoods, trends related to politics, trends related to sexuality and pregnancy and drug use and alcohol consumption and every possible trend you can imagine. Music habits, entertainment consumption habits, sports viewing habits. But I find this trend of rising rudeness to be perhaps among the most alarming because it's the one that we can all collectively decide to put an end to tomorrow. And I think we should. Have you noticed the uptick in rudeness? Or do you think this is one of those things where Harvard Business Review is creating a trend where none really exists? 800-848-9222. How do you think we can tackle this as a society? I'll make my pledge to be nice to, or not even nice, just be polite to the people that you encounter on a daily basis. I'll make my pledge right now. Will you join me in making your pledge? 800-848-9222. One of the, there's a couple of very influential books that I've read over the years. And we've done segments uh, asking people to contribute their most influential books. And 15 years ago, Frank McKay, who's now the president of uh, our station out on Long Island, 107.1 FM, WABC-FM on Long Island, and he also hosts a very popular podcast in his own right, he said to me, um, you need to read this book. He said, it's going to help you so many different ways. It's a short little book. You'll read it in a day, maybe a day and a half. And the book was Dale Carnegie's How to Win Friends and Influence People. And I know some people may think that the strategies that Carnegie lays out in that book are corny, or some people think that the strategies that Dale Carnegie lays out in that book aren't a good fit for the digital era, or some people may think that uh, using some of those strategies are... um, I don't know, a a way of conning the masses. I have to tell you, that book and the strategies outlined in that book were life-changing to me. And I still could probably stand to go back and brush up on some of those strategies because there are so many simple things that you can do to change the way that you interact with people. And it really does change not only the nature of your interaction with someone— It changes how that person feels about you. And uh, I would encourage everybody to uh, give a read to that book. 800-848-9222. That's 800-848-9222. If you're interested in reading the whole story and looking at the results in the Harvard Business Review, I've just linked to the entire story uh, with the Harvard Business Review on my Facebook page. Facebook.com slash MoranoFan. Rudeness is on the rise and incivility comes back to bite us all. And unfortunately, according to the experts, rudeness is contagious. I'd love to know, one, if you've observed this, and two, what we can do about it. 800-848-9222. That's 800-848-9222. Let me begin with Steve in Manhattan. Hello, Steve. All right, Frank, but you got to remember, you are like the ultimate people person. And rudeness is Steve from Manhattan being banned from thousands of shows. I clear my throat. They hang up on me. That's rude. But I could tell you the rudeness today 
is a reflection of society in itself. I mean, there's so many people out there who are nasty and rude, and I notice they do it to older people, elderly people. I can see an elderly woman, like, carrying a bag, and three, four teenagers will start walking toward her to cause her, like, to start dodging them out. With Come on, what kind of behavior is that? I mean, Frank, if you really want to test case this, right, you have to move to the Bronx to eat more projects for a year and practice not being rude and being nice and see if you can start a trend, start some kind, blaze a trail on getting people. Then after you move out of those projects, a year later, move into one of the Rockaway projects and do it again and just see if you can blaze a trail and stop in rudeness. I think you can do it because you are the ultimate, and I really mean it, people person. Plus, talk about rudeness. Pat Buchanan's birthday was two weeks ago. Nobody wished him a happy 84th birthday. First of all, that is not true. I wished him a happy 84th birthday on the air. And I reached out to him privately and wished him a happy birthday. So that's not true. I know, but I said because you're the ultimate people person. But nobody else did it. Nobody else even considered doing it either. Well... People are ruder and nastier today, and they're doing it to the elderly people, which is disgusting. It's a reflection of society and, and basically an indicator on, on society going down into the dumpster, and that's where we're going. Frank, move into the Eat More projects in the Bronx for a year and be a blaze, a well, trailblazer. Thank you, Steve. I appreciate that. You know, I, I, don't, I know Steve is being somewhat tongue-in-cheek. I don't think that's the worst idea that I've ever heard. But I will tell you that um, I'm not going to do that because I find it incredibly inconvenient and irritating to move. And if I could go the rest of my life without moving again, I would consider that a win. Now, will I be successful in that? Who knows? But I just am not going to move just for the sake of this experiment. But I'm, we have people listening on the, in the Bronx and in every community, and in, in, not just in this country, but around the world. I would love to see people take it upon themselves to be a politeness ambassador. My um, father and stepmother, they were just back from, where were they? Oh, I think they were back from Iowa. They were in Iowa for the first time. And they said the worst thing about Iowa, no disrespect to anybody that lives there. They said the worst thing about Iowa was the food. They did not have one. They were out there for a, a family wedding. The worst thing about Iowa was the food, and they didn't have not have one meal that was decent in, in the whole time that they were there. But the one thing they took notice of was how polite everyone was. Every single store that you went into, every single business, every single museum that you went into, you got the impression that this was someone that would be willing to go out of their way for a total stranger. And, you know, I've noticed that with New Yorkers a lot. And I think that um, I think that maybe in general, that's something in society, irrespective of where we're living, that we've gotten away from to some extent. 800-848-9222. Let me tell you what's coming up. Uh, very much looking forward to uh, the guest we're going to have in about 10 minutes. Gil Barndoller is a senior research fellow at CSS and a senior fellow at Defense Priorities. Uh, he knows the Middle East. He knows foreign policy. Knows the uh, knows military policy very very well, and he's uh, written some very interesting things on foreign policy and where we're headed. And we're going to talk about kind of the role of the United States military in the world today. And then in an hour, I'm going to talk with uh, legendary comic Tom Dreesen, who of course is not just a pretty impressive comedian in his own right, but he's also the guy that was Frank Sinatra's opening act for 14 years. 
I have interviewed Tom Dreesen many times over the years. I am yet to be disappointed by one of our conversations. So I'm looking forward to that. 800-848-9222. Brian is in Queens. Hello, Brian. Hi, Frank. So I believe it's not necessarily that people, I mean, maybe some people are more ruder, but I think it's more that people are more sensitive now mm. than they are, say, years ago. I think that people are uh, get offended by when somebody is assertive. So I think that probably the study comes from is a reflection on how people become uh, are more easily offended than they are, say, years ago. I like this theory. It is pretty interesting. And so you're saying people aren't more rude these days. People just perceive rudeness and are more attentive to rudeness these days. Right. I, like huh. I said, I think that people interpret assertiveness as rudeness and people want to hear like they want they want that whole preface. Uh, before your statement where uh, you're basically apologizing before you even tell them to do something or you ask something of them. Yeah, well, that's interesting, Brian. Thank you. Uh, I think I do think people are more rude today. And you know what I think one of the biggest culprits is? I think one of the biggest culprits is social media. You know, it used to be, and, and not just social media, but a generation that has grown up interacting with others through screens and through social media. For instance, if, if you were a kid and you're a 10-year-old, and look, I'm sure every 10-year-old has said something mean at one time or another, but it used to be if you were a, a 10-year-old or a 9-year-old, whatever, you know, some impressionable age, and you said something mean to another 9-year-old or a 10-year-old, what would you see happen? You'd see the person, the object of your ridicule, the object of your reproach, be sad. Sometimes they'd cry. Sometimes they'd make a face. Sometimes they'd yell back at you. But it was a very real, a very real-world consequence to your action. Now, if you say something mean to someone through a computer screen if it's a, or a screen of some sort of phone, whether it's an SMS text message or it's a comment on Twitter or on Facebook, and you never see how it affects them, you're never going to be chastened. You're never going to take a step back, you're probably only going to get worse. So I believe that uh, that's one of the culprits here. I'll give you one example. Ali London, who was on this show yesterday, he tweeted a link to our episode, uh, our interview yesterday, and I retweeted it at uh, Frank Morano on Twitter, Frank M-O-R-A-N-O. And someone responds to the Ali London tweet, and I don't know who this person is, and I don't know if they're responding to my retweet or Ali London's initial tweet, you know what this person's response was right back to Ali London or me or both? I don't know. Please shut the F up. And they, they actually said it. They don't say F. They spelled out the F word. Now, I ha- don't think I've ever said that to someone in social media, on real li- in real life. And yet that is now how people interact with one another. And I think social media is one of the big culprits here. And I'd love to know your take on how we can turn this ship around. 800-848-9222. That's 800-848-9222. Although I did appreciate Brian's uh, thought that maybe people aren't more rude. Maybe it's just perception. 800-848-9222. Ed is on Staten Island. Hello, Ed. Hey, Frank. Uh, my, uh, let's see, I think it may be IT. You know, people are more into the electronic devices. Also, there's you know, increased population density, like you have here in New York. My mother was from Missouri, where Dale Carnegie was from, uh, which I, I taught the class. 
uh, human relations and public speaking at Hop Park. Um, but I remember walking down the street with my mom in Missouri, and she was taking me somewhere, and she said hello to a man. I said, did you know him? She goes, no, that's what we do out here, Eddie. But as for Dale Carnegie, um, you know, he, uh, he has chapters on, you know, how to be nicer to people, how to listen um, genuinely and give uh, genuine and sincere compliments to them. Um, I mean, ask me something about Dale Carnegie. He, uh, he went to the same college, Wartburg Teachers College and my mom's. And I know, I think out West, you seem to, you seem to have people that have uh, sometimes more morals. They probably eat more at the dinner table. You know, here, you know, you know how it is in traffic or on the street. Uh, I was in St. Patrick's Cathedral about, about a month ago for John McGurk's uh, uh, thing. And um, you, you, even my sister moved out to uh, Sound Beach on Long Island. She couldn't take it anymore. She wouldn't take the subways. It was too dense for her. She would get panic attacks. But uh, sorry, I just came up the stairs here. Uh, Dale Carnegie and his book, How to Win Friends and Influence People, uh, had a lot to say about being nice with people and having plus-plus outcomes. They're not necessarily letting anything, you know, drain you uh, in the uh, in the interaction with it. And it, it applied to business world. Yeah, no, a hundred percent, a hundred percent, Ed. I'm not suggesting. Uh, and thanks for the call, uh, Ed. Uh, I'm not suggesting that people do what I do and and go out of their way and inconvenience themselves so they can uh, honor the request or uh, do a favor for someone they barely know. But what does it take to be polite to someone, to not be gruff, to smile when you're interacting with a cashier, to uh, to to say thank you to a waiter or a bartender, or use their name? I, it doesn't take any extra effort. So why do why do people why are people going the other way? 800-848-9222. Let us go from Ed in Staten Island to Ed in Staten Island. Hello, Ed. Hey, Frank. How are you? Good. Meanness is regional. Um, years ago, I went to my aunt's funeral. She lived in Pennsylvania, and she lived among the Mennonites, and they were the most polite people on earth. And it was like culture shock. I was coming from working downtown Manhattan, used to being the, the rat race, and I was like, Stop it. Stop it. Stop being nice to me. But uh, it's regional. Depends on where you live. Well, yeah, I mean, uh, that is what my uh, father and stepmother reported about their trip to Iowa. But if this study is to be believed, on average, people are getting less civil to one another everywhere. So maybe it is regional. But if the kind of the um, Overton window of what's acceptable behavior in how people interact with one another is widening everywhere, then I think that's probably affecting everywhere, not just uh, Iowa or Missouri or Amish country or wherever else. 800-848-9222. Joe is in Huntington. Hello, Joe. Yes, Frank. Have you ever, have you ever read the Sermon on the Mount? You know, I, I'm sure that I have. It's been a while, though. Well, but the book, that, The Sermon on the Mount, or the, or, the, or the actual Sermon on the Mount? Sermon on the Mount is found in Matthew 5, 6, and Yes, 7. yeah. I mean, I, again, probably not since, uh, since I was uh, in, um, you know, in studying catechism, but yes. But it's interesting because that really teaches you how not to be rude, how to love your neighbor. All of that is spoken in the Sermon on the Mount. And one thing is interesting. I think we need to have deference. Deference. 
as opposed to rudeness, is that we need to learn how to not to offend people. And we need to be sensitive to them. Sensitive to just like where in Sermon on the Mount it talks about whatsoever you would have men do unto you, right. do you even so to them. So you want to be treated by someone but the way you want to be treated. You want to treat somebody the way you want to be the way you want to be treated. So it's good for a person to be polite, good for a person to uh, go out of the way sometimes for people. Yeah, I, I agree. Okay. Look, I think if you uh, – I just looked quickly at the Sermon on the Mount, and if you look at all the 48 passages of uh, of what Jesus says there, it's difficult to argue with any of that, right? 800-848-9222. John is in Manhattan. Hello, John. Hi, how are you? Good, good, thanks. I just want to say, before I say anything, that I think you're absolutely awesome, and I truly enjoy listening to you. Oh, Matt. thanks. Uh, there's no accounting for taste, I suppose. Yeah, um, I guess my topic would be about the masks. You know, people believe that, you know, they got to wear the mask, and then, you know, there's some people who believe that they don't. Um, I'm, you know, one of them. I think it's a little bit over now, and... Uh, one day when I was leaving a store, some lady just came and yelled at me for not having the mask you, on. You know, I, I just... the same thing happened to me, and I don't know where these people get off. And, and, you know, it happened to me once outside. A guy shouts to me as I'm walking around outside without a mask and shouting to me with, like, the COVID death toll numbers. And I'm just thinking, as this happens, as this is happening, I, I'm thinking— who does this guy think he is that he has the right to come up to me, a, a stranger, walking on the street outside and lecture me about um, about the severity with which I'm taking the COVID pandemic? I mean, I, I agree with you. Uh, that is that's something. So do you think COVID has led to more people being rude, John? I, I, I do. I think that people are going crazy from the COVID. From that's interesting. That, that's such an interesting theory, John. And, that, and it's a great observation. John, I have to run, uh, but uh, yes. I call again. We'll talk soon, okay? I appreciate your Absolutely. nice compliments Thank about you. the show. I love you, man. You guys are awesome. Thanks, John. Appreciate that. Hey, Dr. Gil Barndollar joins me next. We're going to talk about the role of the military in the world today, where things are headed in Ukraine, and what that means for you. This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Morano. Straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. Singing a sign of the times. You know, it is this 
lovely singer's 90th birthday today. Petula Clark celebrating her 90th birthday. I'll tell you, I don't know, um, you know, I don't know what Petula Clark's like these days, but uh, I'll tell you, if somebody, if there's somebody that has had an incredible career as a recording artist and a singer, it is Petula Clark. Hey, it's a sign of the times these days that um, one of the few things that Washington seems to agree upon is that um, the Ukrainians should be funded completely and that the Zelensky government should enjoy the full and complete support of the American taxpayer. And a lot of other folks have been saying, well, wait a minute, what if this leads us closer to nuclear war? A guy whose take on this and a bunch of other issues I am eager to get is Gil Barndoller. He's a senior research fellow at CSS and a senior fellow at Defense Priorities. And just in case you think uh, that's not sufficient enough qualifications, from the, he was also the director of Middle East Studies at the Center for the National Interest. He's written for the Wall Street Journal, the L.A. Times, you name it. He uh, previously served as an infantry officer in the United States Marine Corps, has been deployed to Afghanistan twice, and if that weren't enough, he has a Ph.D. in history from the University of Cambridge. Uh, Dr. Barndoller, thank you so much for joining me on the radio. Hey, thanks, Frank. Appreciate the kind introduction. Well, I appreciate you making some time for us. And uh, I know one of the issues that you've been researching and uh, working on a book about has been examining the all-volunteer military in America. And we have a lot of listeners who came of age at a time when the draft was something to be fearful of uh, because they didn't want to get their lottery number called, their draft number called, and end up in a war that they didn't necessarily believe in. One of the things that we've seen lately is that some people that may think that um, it's unwise to get involved in American conflicts, they've been talking about bringing back the draft uh, because the feeling is that maybe uh, the American military won't be so quick to uh, get into wars that are unpopular if their if their children are getting drafted as well. For instance, Charlie Rangel, who was formerly a prominent member of Congress from New York, he proposed this multiple times before he left office. The timing of my uh, draft uh, legislation was meant to coincide uh, with the president's uh, request for 21,000 additional troops. Um, it's abundantly clear that uh, we're not getting uh, these troops from uh, volunteers, <coughs> but rather uh, people who have already fulfilled their obligations are being asked to being called back. <coughs> National Guards people are being called back, and people who are already over there and expected to come home are going to be asked to stay there. Uh, clearly, uh, we are abusing uh, those people who have enlisted and signed up. That was obviously during the war in Iraq and the Bush administration. What has your research shown you, uh, Gil, about the efficacy of the all-volunteer military? And do folks like Rangel and others who brought up the idea of bringing back the draft, do they, do they have some merit to their argument? Yeah, I think there's definitely some merit to the argument. I mean, I don't think it's, you know, we're not even beginning to have that conversation in any meaningful way as a country. And I think we're a long way off from that. Uh, but I think we're sitting here now next year, and you may be aware, 
is going to be actually the 50-year anniversary of the end of the draft and the beginning of the all-volunteer force. And I should add that all-volunteer force is kind of a misnomer. It's really the all-recruited force, and that's I think that's a key distinction, uh, especially now as we're having a recruiting crisis, and that's that you know kind of rears its head episodically uh, over the last few decades, but we're in a particularly bad one right now. Um, but I think we have to look at the facts. The facts are that despite its uh, its capability and and you know that no, no question the battlefield performance of the U.S. military, uh, our country is almost winless with a with a volunteer force. You know if you don't count kind of small, you know your Granadas and your Panamas and stuff like that, uh, we've won one one real war by my count, Desert Storm, with a with a an all volunteer force with an all recruited military, uh, and we've got a bunch of losses on the scoreboard. And I think that bears examination. So do you think um, that we should bring back the draft if our interest is winning military conflicts? Well, I think we've got – it's not quite that simple. I mean, I don't think we're going to go back. I don't think there's any cause or fault for the U.S. to go back to a World War II-style draft where, where everybody or, or certainly every male is being drafted. Uh, but I think we've got some some big questions to face ahead of us, and I think there are even some things that are – you know, security challenges we face – at the same time, let's let's be honest and look at a map. Like our country is incredibly geographically blessed. You know, there's no other no other power on earth, and and probably you'd struggle to find another great power, another superpower in in, in human history that was as blessed as the United States geographically. You know, being a country the size of a continent with just uh, you know an ocean on on either side and then a weak neighbor on the other two sides. So we're very secure in that sense, and that's a real thing. Even in the age of you know intercontinental ballistic missiles and terrorism and other threats, we're sometimes told or don't respect uh, boundaries. But um, all that being said, I think when you look at what's ahead of us, especially when you talk about climate change and disruptions, that's going to cause, um, you know, potentially real immigration crises that would outpace anything we're seeing now. We may need a lot more people in uniform in the decades to come. One of the other arguments that's always made for bringing back the draft or some sort of um, mandatory national service, because various proposals include alternatives to military service as well, is that it would be a fine character-building exercise for America's youth and how a lot of American youth come of age today never being called upon to sacrifice for the common good or for their country. Do you see anything to that? Yeah, I, I kind of do and I don't. I mean, my experience in, in the Marines was, was really positive in that regard. And I think it's, um, you you know, you've got your your, your bottom 10% sometimes and, and your top 10% that are superstars too. But by and large, you just get a lot of really solid young people that I think are, are again, by and large, better off when they leave. Uh, but that's not the purpose of the institution, right? We have a military to fight wars and, and to win wars. Uh, and so I think if you're just creating it as, especially military service. I think it's important to differentiate, as, as you kind of did, between a military draft and, and a broader kind of national service concept. Um, but I think if you're doing this as sort of a, a character-building exercise, you're going to kind of set up this, this sort of boondog one. I'm curious. I'm, I'm skeptical that that's hmm. really going to work. Um, I mean, I think one, one country that, you know, we hear a lot about in the news and, and people are concerned about going forward is Taiwan, which has this kind of vestigial military draft. It's only four months long. Uh, it's not taken very seriously, and if anything, it, my understanding is it creates a lot of a lot of skepticism and a lot of uh, lack of regard for the military because it seems kind of a joke. Talking with uh, Dr. Gil Barndoller, he is a fellow with the with a great think tank called Defense Priorities, also a, a Marine veteran. Give me your take on uh, what we're seeing in Ukraine. I know you've spoken about this, you've written a bit about it. 
tell me um, where, where where you see this conflict going and what you think America's place in it is. Yeah, well, I think it's I think it's pretty clear the Ukrainians are winning on the battlefield. You know, they 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 blunted most people, including I think uh, you know most folks in the U.S. government that were studying this issue in February thought the Russians were going to roll over them, were going to at least get us you know take take Kiev and, and overthrow the Ukrainian government um, and install some kind of proxy. And obviously that didn't happen. Uh, it may have been a closer run thing than we thought. The Ukrainians repulsed the Russians, you know, uh, fought their way through some, some, I think, months of heavy fighting and, and heavy casualties. We don't even really fully know those numbers. Uh, and then and now we're on the, certainly on the offensive. So the fall of Kherson, I think, is a big deal. I think that the I think the longer this goes on, the more on the battlefield it's going to favor the Ukrainians. This idea that the Russians are going to have these advantages in, in a long war, I think, is, is kind of this weird historical artifact. It doesn't stand up to a lot of scrutiny. When you look at how much trouble they had just mobilizing 300,000 men to, to kind of fill the holes in the line and, and create a real, you know, prevent a collapse this winter. Uh, and then the problems they're going to have in terms of weapons, a lot of which they can't make most, a lot of the, a lot of the serious stuff they can't make without Western components that are all shut off by sanctions. So I think the Ukrainians are, are going to keep kind of grinding forward with, you know, potentially a lower tempo during the winter. So where do you think America comes, plays a role in this? Should we be doing what we've been doing and continuing to offer military aid, equipment and money to the Zelensky government? Or is there some other strategy that we should be uh, seeking or implementing? Well, I think, you know, I think actually what the administration's done is, is broadly been the right course, although I think they've um, they've walked a very fine line, and I think it's a very it's a tough thing to do, right? We're not I think we we sort of are not used to being in this kind of proxy conflict, and, and not used to a conflict where we have to stay hands off for the sake of basic prudence and preventing escalation that could get really dangerous, and, and you know with the specter of kind of nuclear weapons in the background. Um, and I think we have to be careful in that regard in terms of how this war terminates. And there's there's more discussion now in the press and in Washington, I think and certainly in the administration, about negotiations and about sort of what, what war termination looks like. And so I think that, uh, you know, broadly, I don't have a problem with us supporting Ukrainians and, and spending what on the face of it looks like a lot of money. But when we look at what we're doing to the Russian military, I mean, we've, we've <laughs> mostly American weapons have caused probably something that will take them a decade plus to recover from and have really reduced if not almost eliminated the conventional Russian military threat to the rest of Europe. So that's a huge, that's a huge victory, especially since the Russians chose this war. Uh, but I think we need to be careful going forward in terms of where this takes us and not getting into a situation that, that escalates uh, and starts that spiral. I'm sure you've seen the, uh, the coverage of ethnic Russians in eastern Ukraine, including in the Donbass region and in places like Crimea, who do seem much more comfortable, uh, not only culturally and linguistically, but politically, being part of Russia rather than the rather than the Ukrainian government, which is a little bit more Western in all the respects that I just mentioned. Do you see a way in which those Eastern Ukrainians that may identify more with the Russians are able to be part of Russia? while Western Ukraine gets to be a part of the West and the EU and so forth? Well, I, I mean, you know, that was a narrative certainly before the war in a lot of respects. There was probably more truth to it then. Um, I, I think that let's set Crimea aside for a minute because I think that's kind of a special case. That was 
for what it's worth, you know, historically that was always kind of part of Russia and was sort of transferred over to Ukraine and kind of a, uh, a political move in the 50s. Uh, and that's not to excuse the fact that Russians, you know, annexed it um, unilaterally and what they did in 2014. Um, but just that, that's kind of a different case in some ways. But the rest of Ukraine, I, I think it's, you know, yes, there are, there are kind of breakdowns linguistically to some extent, although it, it, even that gets a little dicey. You know, Odessa is well into western Ukraine, is unequivocally a Ukrainian city, but has, uh, I think, a plurality of Russian speakers. And Zelensky's a, you know, a, 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 Russian, a Russian speaker. So I think it's not quite that that tidy, and I think that Russia's war has alienated a lot of mm-hmm. Eastern Ukrainians and Russian-speaking Ukrainians who might have been better disposed towards Russia up until the you know this onslaught. So I think that picture's probably changed quite a bit in just the last you know uh, seven eight months of war. I was talking with uh, Gil Barndoller about the situation in Ukraine and uh, the kind of the global scene generally. Is there a danger? With the United States being on the side of the Ukrainians, with things continuing to escalate, is it better with the Ukrainians scoring these military victories, including in Kherson, which you just cited, to use this as an opportunity while the Russians are, um, you know, experiencing some setbacks to try to get a peaceful negotiated settlement and a ceasefire rather than continuing to aid the Ukrainian side? Well, I think we just, I think we need to be, be cautious and be careful about where the red lines are. And I, and I, you know, that's kind of a guessing game to some extent. There were people that would have told you three, four weeks ago, two months ago, that would have said that, you know, Kherson is a red line. If the Ukrainians come close to taking it, the Russians will employ tactical nuclear weapons. Obviously that, that, that didn't happen. And there was no, uh, certainly nothing out in the public sphere that that was even, you know, a serious possibility. Uh, people would now tell you that, that Crimea is, is potentially a Russian red line, and that strikes me as a lot more more plausible. Um, so I think that you know I understand the public stance the administration is taking, and I understand that they don't they want to leave no daylight between them and the Ukrainian government, um, and I get that. But I think we have to be clear that as you're sort of alluding to, U.S. interests and Ukrainian interests are not one and the same, um, and and fundamentally our, our major interest in this war, as much as as good as it is to help the Ukrainians, as much as that's to America's advantage, uh, both morally and strategically in a lot of ways, that the, the number one priority is preventing a nuclear war with Russia, right? That doesn't mean we, we have to let them conquer Ukraine. Obviously, we didn't do that, but we have to have that in the back of our minds for sure. Where, where, how do you know where the red lines are, though? Well, I, that's, the, that's the tricky part, right, especially in a, in a regime like Russia's that, that already was pretty – Centralized, pretty you know totalitarian is a strong word, but a very centralized authoritarian state uh, and and pretty opaque before the war. And this has become much more so. You know the, the limited Russian independent media, uh, the kind of regular intercourse between Russian policymakers and people in the West. All of that is is uh, has been reduced to a trickle. Um, so it's much more of a guessing game, and I think that that should induce some caution. Uh, and Putin, you know, famously has walled himself off to a far greater degree, largely as a result of COVID. Uh, so I think there's, I think we need to kind of err on the side of caution with some of these things. But by the same token, um, you know, we we we're in this war as as not, you know, as, as the arsenal of the Ukrainians. I think that does serve a lot of strategic purpose, but we need to be very careful going forward. Last, uh, sorry, lastly, you um, you referenced Taiwan. Obviously, President Biden is meeting this week with uh, President Xi of China. I'm sure Taiwan is very much 
on the uh, on the uh, one of the uh, discussion agenda items. And uh, there's been a lot of speculation that China may seek to invade Taiwan militarily. And we've heard a lot of conflicting messaging from President Biden and his spokespeople about what the American reaction would be. What do you think America should do if China went forward with a military invasion of Taiwan? Well, my view is we should do our best to prevent that from happening, and I think that we we should really be looking at deterring China by making by making it a very uh, uncertain or dubious proposition for the Chinese. I mean, amphibious invasions are really I mean, it's about one of the most complex things you can do militarily, and the Chinese uh, regime, the PRC, unlike unlike Putin's Russia, is not made up of gamblers. This has been a pretty you know, a small C conservative kind of government in terms of how it conducts its foreign affairs. Uh, they're not, I think, inclined to, to push this issue if they don't if they don't feel very assured of success. Hmm. Um, so I'm I'm uh, very kind of cautious about direct U.S. intervention in that conflict, although I don't think it's imminent. Um, and you know, the president said that just the other day after this meeting with Xi. But um, but I think the best thing we can do is help the Taiwanese, but they have to be willing to, to fight themselves. And as, as I kind of alluded to in discussing their manpower situation militarily, that's a bit of an open question, too, what the Taiwanese would do in the event of a war, particularly if they're blockaded and there's nobody coming to their aid immediately. Gil Barndollar, we're going to have to leave it there. I appreciate the conversation. I'll look forward to uh, chatting with you again soon. Yeah, I appreciate it. Good Thank you. Again. If you want to comment on any portion of our conversation, you can give me a call, 1-800-848-9222. That's 800-848-9222. Straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight. Midnight. It's the other side of midnight with Frank Morano. There must be some kind of way out of here. Said a joker to the thief There's too much confusion I can't This is The Other no Side of Midnight. Me. I'm Frank Moreno. I was telling you yesterday how my wife and I went out to uh, Long Island for the weekend. It was the first time that both of us had uh, gone away somewhere and left my son overnight somewhere. And we left um, my son with my mother-in-law, who lives on Long Island. And uh, my wife and I went out uh, with some friends and family members to Jake's 58, had a great time, went out to dinner. And uh, I saw my wife stay up the latest that she stayed up in a long time. So she was up until about 2 a.m. And then we got up early because we had to go back and uh, pick up my son so that my mother-in-law could go to church. So obviously my wife didn't get a lot of sleep. I um, had made plans with Juliet Huddy uh, to get breakfast. And it's very interesting when some of our friends that we were hanging out with at one thirty, two o'clock in the morning, uh, they live, you know, where we live in our neighborhood. And I said, oh, you know, we're going to breakfast with Juliet Huddy and uh, you're welcome to come. And I did not ask Juliet first before inviting these folks. And then um, I had told Juliet, that because she said she could be kind of flexible on time and her house lives sort of on the way to our house. And I said, all right, well, you know, I'll I'll let you know around what time. I said, okay, it's going to be around uh, 1130 if that works for you. She was fine with that. So we went, picked up Carmine, start driving towards um, Huntington. 
And we, you know, I'm texting Juliet around the time that we're talking about. And I say, hey, I hope you don't mind, but uh, this other couple, they're big fans of yours, and they'd love to have breakfast with us as well. And they've met Juliet before. And Juliet never said okay, right? So she never confirms that she's okay with this. So I'm here in this position. Well, what do you do, right? Do you tell this couple, well, you know, I asked if Juliet, I asked Juliet if you guys could come, and uh, she didn't say anything. Or do I go and call Juliet? Or does that make it a bigger issue? Does it look like I'm working too hard to uh, get these people invited? If so, why am I working so hard? So I um, do did what I always do in my typical passive aggressive way, which is do nothing and then hope everything works out. And the other couple came, and uh, you know Juliet and her husband were there. My wife and I were there. We had a great time. Fine breakfast, good breakfast. You know what I had for the first time? Lobster Benedict, eggs Benedict, but instead of with Canadian bacon or ham, lobster. It was delicious. Very. It was quite good. It was it was, was twenty four dollars, but it was quite good. So we have this breakfast, and I could tell my wife is tired. And we go through this whole breakfast. I said, honey. Why don't you let me drive home so that you can sleep on the way home? She says, no, you're not going to have a chance to get a lot of work done. You need to sleep in the car so that you can work when we get home and be ready for the show. I said, no, it's okay. I'll be, I'll be okay. Well, let me drive home. No, 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 no. And um, sure enough, start driving home. My wife believes I am one of the worst drivers, and she's not wrong necessarily. Uh, she believes I'm one of the worst drivers out there. I, I drive her crazy when I'm driving. That's primarily what I'm driving. Not a vehicle, but I'm driving her crazy. So we're, we're driving home, and I see she's really struggling to stay awake. She is changing the station on the music, and um, I am talking to her. I'm interacting with her, and uh, I see that and, and so that she's awake and engaged. So now I'm sacrificing sleep, which is the whole reason she said she wanted to drive in the first place. And I'm saying, honey, let me drive. No, no, no. And then we hit this major traffic jam, and we're about an hour away from home. And I see, because I've seen this when I do this when I'm tired, she's actually smacking herself in the face while driving to make sure that she stays awake. I said, honey, please just let me drive. And sure enough, she insisted on continuing to drive. I mean, think about that. She would rather risk killing all three of us by falling asleep while driving than risk having me drive home. She kept saying, Frank, you know how rare it is and the special circumstances that need to be in place for me to allow you to drive. But I got a big kick out of that. I am curious what you would do, though. I mean, obviously, I think a normal person in the situation of the other couple that wanted to come to breakfast, I think a normal person would have cleared the invite first prior to inviting that other couple. But, of course, with me, you're not dealing with a normal person, right? So I'm curious what you would do in that instance. I think I handled it fine. Everyone everyone got along. I never heard anything negative from anybody. But um, that's always another thing that drives my wife nuts, is that I'm always inviting other people to lunches and breakfasts and dinners with other folks. The, I would say of my many qualities that she dislikes, that's got to be in the top three, is that rather than just make plans with, you know, Joe and Alice, I have to also invite 
Shirley and Dennis in, in ter- terms of these these kinds of uh, inv- social outings. 800-848-9222. Tom Dreesen joining me next hour. Very excited to uh, talk to him. Michael's in Manhattan. Hello, Michael. Hey, uh, this this uh, general, if I have his uh, title correct, is one smart dude. And what he said about uh, the draft is correct. It, it's not meant to be some uh, social educational process. You're there to fight a war, kill the other people. But my other point... Well, Mike, I'm sorry. We're out of time. I appreciate it. And he's not a general. He was an infantry officer in the Marines. Not a general. He is a PhD, so you can call him doctor. Tom Dreesen joins me next hour. Got some other fun stuff planned as well. And the mail. Keep asking questions. This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Now, here's Frank Morano. By now, you've probably heard that uh, former Vice President Mike Pence, who many people have touted, including himself, quite frankly, as a potential 2024 presidential contender, has a new book out. And um, the book is mostly a memoir, and it covers a lot of different things. I haven't read the book, but I'm basing it on the excerpts that have been reprinted elsewhere and the reviews of the book that I've read. And the book does something that Vice President Pence hasn't really done until this week, which is that it um, adds to some criticisms of former President Trump. Now, again, I always like to put my cards on the table in terms of where I come down on certain things. I have um, never really been a fan of Mike Pence politically. I think he's a a great guy. I think uh, he's of esteemable character. He's exactly the kind of person that uh, I would want as my son's football coach or a Sunday school teacher or, um, you know, as somebody that that, uh, was on the neighborhood watch in my community. He uh, strikes me as a guy that is honest, a guy that is of... um, Uh, fine character, a guy that I always considered pretty loyal. But um, I never really liked his politics. I always felt that on uh, both domestic policy and foreign policy, he was more in that neoconservative vein that that always kind of kept me away from the Republican Party. So I never really liked that. I did um, appreciate the fact that he always seemed to be pretty loyal to President Trump and resisted getting involved in a lot of the palace intrigue. But uh, I have to tell you, I think that um, his role on January 6th, I thought Mike Pence, even though I would have hoped that Trump would have picked someone else as his vice president, I think Pence handled his role on January 6th admirably. I don't think there's any way that you can look at the electoral... um, the Electoral Count Act of 1876 or the Constitution, the 12th Amendment or anything else, and say that Mike Pence had a means of setting aside the electoral votes of certain states. So I thought Pence did well, especially I gave him credit knowing that 
he was endangering himself with some in the Trump base, which is not a wise thing to do if you're viewing yourself as a Republican presidential candidate. So um, I, Pence grew in my esteem with his handling of January 6th. So yesterday, I usually never watch the, not never, but I rarely watch the ABC News, the nightly news with David Muir. But last night I did because I wanted to see this interview with Mike Pence. I thought it was interesting. And uh, I'm sorry that I missed his interview with Hannity earlier in the week, but he's doing a whole media tour. He's doing CNN. I'm sure he'll go on uh, with John Katsimatidis on the radio. He's been on with John before. And he's doing a whole bunch of other network, you know, uh, appearances as well. And even in the interview with Hannity on Monday, he was much more gentle in his criticisms of Trump, but he was critical of Trump. So he talked about the phone call, Vice President Pence did, that he had with President Trump on the morning of January 6th. I picked up the phone and the president uh, asked me where I was on the electoral count that would take place that day. And I told him, uh, despite what you issued last night from your campaign, Mr. President, you know, I've been very clear that I don't have the authority to reject votes during the electoral count or return those votes to the states. And uh, it went downhill from there. Um, the president became very irate on the phone. Um, he, um, he said that if that was true, that he made a mistake five years ago. You write that the president told you you will go down as a wimp. And you reminded him of the oath that you both took? The president often said that... Uh, uh, we need to protect the country. And I reminded him, uh, we both took an oath to support and defend the Constitution of the United States. I told him it was a promise that I made uh, to the American people and to Almighty God. Did you ever point blank say to the president, I will not do this, I will not intervene, we lost this election? I did, David, many times. This is the uh, cut from this David Muir interview that the networks are playing up, that all the papers are playing up, that's going to be repeated all day today. But the president's words were reckless, and his actions were reckless. The president's words that day at the rally endangered me and my family and everyone at the Capitol. And um, think Pence was laying it on a little bit thick there. A little bit thick. Again, I don't dispute that this was a very scary situation when you have a bunch of angry protesters, rioters, storming the building that you're in, and they're all chanting, hang Mike Pence, and the Secret Service is begging you to evacuate. I think he's he's adding a little drama. I'm not disputing that it was scary, and I do agree that uh, President Trump's words at that point were a bit reckless. And uh, Pence told David uh, Muir about one of the president's tweets that day. Members were barricaded inside the House chamber. Mm-hmm. And in the middle of it all, you can see that the president has tweeted. 2.24 p.m., the president tweets, Mike Pence didn't have the courage to do what should have been done. It angered me. But I turned to my daughter, who was standing nearby, and I said, it doesn't take courage to break the law. It takes courage to uphold the law. I mean, the president's words were reckless. 
it was clear he decided to be part of the problem. And, and this, I guess, look, uh, again, I give Donald Trump credit. I mean, for, excuse me. I give Mike Pence, Mike Pence credit for acting in not in his own political self-interest, but in the best interests of the country and exercising some independence from President Trump, which he had rarely done as as vice president, which, you know, look, when you're the vice president, you're expected to be loyal. But the thing with Pence that I've always found a little bit off-putting was on display in this interview, which is he always strikes me as so self-righteous and moralistic. He's always he's this this prig who behaves as if he's morally superior to others. And uh, that I, I got the sense that that was very much on display in that interview. I'm curious what you thought of the interview, if you saw it, if you saw it. And uh, if not, what you thought of my, um, you know, uh, my playing these three audio sound bites that you just heard. 800-848-9222. And he certainly to me sounds like a presidential candidate. And um, President Trump is expected to announce today it's looking to me like we are heading towards a primary where you're going to see President Trump running, where you're going to see Vice President Pence running, where you're going to see Governor DeSantis running, possibly Governor Yunkin and possibly former Secretary of State Mike Pompeo. And I'm curious how you think Pence's book and this media tour that he's doing now where he's really overtly criticizing Trump for the first time, I'm curious how you think this is going to play in the Republican primaries 18 months from now. Do you think that will cause his esteem to grow in the eyes of Republican primary voters? Do you think that will cause his esteem to diminish in the eyes of Republican primary voters? What do you think? 800-848-9222. We're going to talk with uh, Tom Dreesen in about uh, 15 minutes, but I want to uh, put in a plug for the Racket Report. There is a brand new edition of the Racket Report that has been posted. And uh, if you want to listen to this, just search the Racket Report on any podcast app. You could find it on Spotify. You could find it on Apple, where you can also hear Governor Cuomo's podcast. And uh, any podcast app there is, basically. Just search The Racket Report with Frank Morano. And my most recent episode is an interview with the former chief assistant district attorney in Brooklyn, Michael Vecchione. And we covered an incredible amount of ground. But almost all of the interview is focused on his book, Homicide Is My Business, Luigi, Luigi the Zip. A Hitman's Quest for Honor. Now, I'd like to think I follow Mafia News more closely than most, but I didn't know who Luigi the Zip was. And so Michael Vecchione, again, one of the top prosecutors in Brooklyn for many years, chose to focus on Luigi the Zip for his book. And to me, what was so interesting about this book and my interview with him was we really delved into and got a sense of what mafia is like, not just in the United States, but in Sicily. Because in order to understand who Luigi the Zip was and why um, what he did in America was so important and meaningful, you really need to understand what the nature of mafia life is like in Sicily. Lay a foundation for us. What was mafia life in Sicily like in the middle part of the 20th century? Well, for the most part, it was um, it was controlled uh, by the uh, by the mob in Palermo, 
Um, they were the ones who ran um, virtually all of the uh, the underworld in uh, in, in Sicily at that time. And um, and unfortunately for uh, for Luigi, he was not uh, born or raised in uh, in Palermo. He was born and raised in a in, in the town of Catania which is on the east coast of, um, of Sicily, and, and Palermo was on the north coast. So they were sort of the, um, like the, the B team, so to speak. Uh, the people who were mafia figures in Catania um, did not, uh, they didn't answer to the, to the people in, in Palermo, but they were respectful of them and recognized that the, uh, the major uh, players in Sicily at the time were those in, um, in Palermo. Um, and, and that kind of held back Luigi. Um, Luigi, from the time that he was a little boy, uh, wanted to become a, a made man, a, a member of the mafia, and someone who he called a man of honor. Um, and he, when he, when in his later life, and later in his life, when he testified in front of um, in front of the President Reagan's Commission on Organized Crime. He was asked about that by a senator, and he said that in he, this is, was his quote essentially uh, that American boys grow up wanting to be baseball players, mm. and in Sicily, um, Italian boys or Sicilian. Is that the end of the uh, clip? Okay. Well, so that's, uh, yeah, it was sort of an abrupt edit there. But uh, you got the sense of what we're talking about. So if you want to hear the whole thing, uh, you can uh, just search The Racket Report on uh, any podcast app or just go to wabcradio.com. Really a fascinating, fascinating conversation uh, that I hope you'll listen to. 800-848-9222. That's 800-848-9222 if you want to comment on this Mike Pence book and this Mike Pence media tour and what you think it might mean for 2024. Chris is in the Catskills. Hello, Chris. Good morning, Frank. Good morning. Uh, I think... I think Frank should he he should just Pence should just walk away. He's got no shot of winning the primary. I think he's he he's not finishing his sentences and calling Trump out because he's afraid that some deranged Trump supporter is going to kill him. But if he if he goes out on the campaign trail, the same thing could happen to him. It's the ego that's keeping him in the business. So uh, yeah, I mean, look, I think even Pence himself, at least it's being reported that um, he has told others that he recognizes that his bid for the nomination is a long shot. So when you say he should just go away, I mean, obviously, the guy's a young enough guy. Uh, he could still, he's probably going to make some decent money with this book. He's got this uh, this foundation or something. He could certainly make a lot of money as a media commentator. He's got a pretty nice uh, pension, I would think, both as vice president, a congressman, and as uh, as a governor, but you don't think that he should be doing anything in the political realm, I guess. I, I think he's, writing books is a great thing. Uh, being a commentator on one of these news networks, or maybe he could uh, listen to you more and become a talk radio host talking about politics, learn how to do talk radio. I, I think he's taken a big risk going out there on the campaign trail with all the vitriol and, you know, with with the events that happened on January 6th, they were calling to hang the guy, you know, uh, hundreds of people in in an angry mob, you know, and that's putting it mildly. Hey, Frank, I don't know if you got a chance to, to, to read the James Scoopus uh, uh, Twitter uh, comments. They, they were they were kind of off the wall. I, I texted them to you. But, I, I didn't know. Uh, uh, he basically, well, he won 
his state Senate district only by 900 votes. He got the KJ endorsement, and uh, he was bragging. Some for some reason he was calling out Colin Schmidt. Uh, he was bragging about how he he won uh, in the, his district that was plus 14 for Zeldin. And in the past, historically, James Scoopus has won districts that were like plus 15 for Trump. And you know, I'll be honest with you, he's the best debater and campaigner I've ever seen, but he's very cocky. And he basically told Colin Schmidt that if he has difficulty uh, securing his unemployment benefits to call his office for constituent help. All right. So I'm not. So what's the point? I mean, who cares? I just thought you're into politics. I thought that it would be something that you would. Uh, yeah, you know, I don't like that. I don't out. like that kind of, uh, but you know, kicking them while they're down, spiking the football, uh, trash talking the guys that just lost elections. You know, and I know James Goofus, and I've supported him for um, many offices over the years. But uh, again, I didn't see the tweet. I'm just taking your your version of it uh, at, at face value. But uh, and I don't, you know, I'm not looking to criticize a tweet that I didn't see. It's just not my style. I, I think if someone runs for office and doesn't get elected, I think they're more worthy of our um, recognition and our gratitude because they've given the voters more choices and more voices. I'm all for it. It's, it takes a lot of work. And you know this, Chris, having run for office, as you frequently remind us, it takes a lot of work to run for office. And uh, it it's takes an enormous amount of to- a, a toll on not only your life, but your family's life. And I don't think that when people lose a tight election, they're probably already feeling crummy enough about it. I don't think the uh, right thing to do is to make fun of them and saying, oh, see, to call my office about unemployment benefits. To me, it's just very Bush League. It's very low rent as far as I'm concerned. Somebody that uh, always – and by the way, Mike Pence – was a TV and radio talk show host for many years, for about five years. And uh, apparently he got pretty good ratings out there in uh, in the Midwest. Now, being in the Midwest is not like being in New York, but, you know, you got to give the guy credit, right? 800-848-9222. We're going to talk with a guy that always takes the high road, the one and only Tom Dreesen, straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. It's the other side of midnight with Frank Morano. Out of the tree of life, I just picked me a plum. You came along and everything started into hum. Still, it's a real good bet. The best is yet to come. Best is yet to come, and babe, won't that be fine? You think 
you've seen the sun, but you ain't seen it shine. This, of course, is the dulcet tones of Frank Sinatra. Uh, Frank Sinatra's opening act, and he could have had probably anybody open for him in the world. Any singer, any comedian, any juggler, any entertainer in any field. Uh, but he chose for years to have his opening act be the one and only Tom Dreesen. Uh, Tom Dreesen is not only one of the great comedians of all time, not only one of the great storytellers of all time, including many a story about Frank Sinatra, but he also is one of the few people in the entertainment business that it seems like almost nobody has a bad word to say about. And uh, he is a legendary stand-up comic and the author of a terrific memoir called Still Standing, kind enough to stay up late with us tonight. Tom, it's great to talk to you again. Thanks, Frank. That was a nice introduction. But I want to explain to your audience, you know how you become a legend? All my critics are dead. (laughs) (laughs) Well, there's something to be said for that, Tom. Something to be said for that. I outlived them all. (laughs) All those who dislike me are gone now. (laughs) (laughs) That'll do it. Hey, uh, Tom, let me first ask you about um, the story today regarding uh, Jay Leno. Uh, Kind of a sad story that Jay Leno was um, hospitalized after a car fire. I think uh, Jay Leno is very well known as a a car guy, a guy that loves to tinker with cars, guys that loves to drive all sorts of motor cars. And now he's recovering from some Pretty serious burn injuries following a gasoline fire. You have been on The Tonight Show, both with Johnny Carson and Jay Leno. I imagine uh, you and Jay, as uh, fellow stand-ups, go back uh, some time. I've noticed Jay's reputation among some stand-ups isn't always the greatest. I'm curious what uh, what your feeling of Jay Leno is in general and what your interactions uh, with him have been like over the years. Okay, first let me say that I, I talked to, uh, as soon as I heard about it, I was playing in a comedy golf tournament today, you know, that we, uh, uh, where a bunch of comedians get together. And uh, In fact, Bud Friedman's daughter, Zoe, started this, and uh, it, it's, it's, it's to help comedians that are struggling or having a tough time. So when I heard about it, I immediately contacted people that I knew that, that knew Jane and, and his secretary and everything and said, give me all the scoop, that he is saying that he's fine, he's okay, he's going to be okay, but he's going to be in the hospital for a week. But Jay always downplays things. He always, even no matter how serious something will get, he'll try to downplay it. So I'm hoping that he's that he's he's fine. You know, uh, he was working on one of the cars. As for people who don't know, Jay might have 400 and something cars in in a couple of hangars, as well as 175 motorcycles. And uh, I've I've gone to a tour. Uh, uh, my girlfriend. Uh, lives in Arizona, even though I live in California, and she puts on classic car shows. And she always wanted to see Jay's museum of cars. So I called him one day, and he said, yeah, come on over. And he gave her and I the tour. I'm not a car guy, but uh, one of the mechanics told me there, he said, Jay works on these cars as much as we do. He knows as much as we do about cars. This is a top mechanic. They actually even built the car from scratch, you know. So uh, he's always fooling around with them. So evidently he was fooling around with the tent and the engine caught fire or something. He had like a gas explosion. So I'm, I'm hoping that he's all right. I think they're facial burns from what I mm. gathered from the people around him and that they, they, I think he's going to be fine, you know. Did you tell and, a story? Uh, Go ahead, please. 
I, I would say, and to go back, I, I met Jay Leno when I was with a comedy team. Tim Reed and I were America's first black and white comedy team. History shows were the last. We we in those days there were no there were no comedy clubs, so we worked all black clubs in the north and the south, and all white clubs like the Playboy Circuit. So I was working. Uh, Tim Reed and I were working up in Boston, and a friend of mine, a comedian named Mike Preminger, brought this young guy uh, named Jay Leno, who had big glasses and a, and a hat, and he was smoking a pipe. <laughs> he had been in the business about four months when I met him. You know. And uh, we've we've been friends ever since. Did you tell a story about uh, Jay Leno getting hit by a car during a strike in 1979? Yes, it's in the book that it's in the book that I wrote, still standing. Uh, and the subtitle is "My Journey from Streets and Saloons to the Stage and Sinatra," uh, and and it's also in a book called "I'm Dying Up Here." Uh, a guy wrote it about the comedy store strike. Uh, a guy named Bill Needleseeder. Uh, K-N-O-E-D-L-S-E-R, it's a book called I'm Dying Up Here, and they end up doing a a comedy series based around the book. Mm. Um, But what happened was, is that, well, we were on strike because they weren't paying the comedians at these comedy clubs, uh, like the comedy store. So we went on strike against the comedy store. And after about six weeks, it looked like it was going to go on forever. Eighteen comedians, 18 guys and one girl crossed the picket line. So the club was able to stay open while we walked the picket line. You know, David Letterman, me, Jay Leno, you know, um, a lot of the comedians. And it looked like it was going to last forever. And one night I had to speak before Screen Actors Guild. And after they were having a big meeting out here, and I had to give our side of the story. And Mitzi Shore sent a couple of the comedians over to give her side of the story. So we had a debate. And the Screen Actors Guild voted that night that they were going to support us and take a full-page ad out in Variety and The Hollywood Reporter and asking all the actors and actresses in Hollywood to honor uh, us and not to cross the picket line, uh, you know, under the comedian strike. So uh, when upon hearing this, one of Mitzi's um, loyalists who spoke at the Screen Actors Guild debated me. <clears throat> he came back to the comedy store, and all the comedians were out in front picketing, and Jay Leno being one of them. Well, there was a driveway there alongside the comedy store that still exists. And this comedian was racing his engine, racing his engine, uh, trying to get into that driveway, waiting for the traffic to go by. And I looked and I saw them standing in the driveway. I said, hey, get out of the driveway, get out of the driveway. And just then you hear tires screeching, and this car went flying in there uh, to try to scare these guys. But we heard the thud, and then the car went by, and Jay Leno was laying on the ground. And hmm. the girls were screaming and screaming, and, and I said, oh, my God, my God, he hit Jay. I, and we didn't have cell phones in those days. I told him, you know, get somebody call an ambulance, call an ambulance right away. And I, I was so, at that point, Frank, I w- had been six weeks on that picket line. I was touring with Sammy Davis Jr. at the time. I had to turn down work with Sammy to complete this job. I had lost it. And I made up my mind when this guy gets out of the car, I was going to throw a punch at him. I, I boxed when I was in the service. I'm not the toughest guy in the world. But but, but uh, this time, my Italian, I'm Irish Italian. The Italian side got to me, and I, I, I was going to nail this guy. But I knelt down first. Jay's laying on the ground, and everybody's crying and screaming. The girls cry, and I looked, and Jay looked up at me, and he winked at me, and he laid his head back down. <laughs> Come to find out, Jay, when the car went by, Jay stepped aside, but he hit it with his hand, and then he fell on the ground. 
but I didn't know that at the time. You know, so now the ambulances come, and and you know, and and, and the guy gets out of the car, and the girl says, "He said I didn't mean it. I didn't mean it." He runs inside, and and uh, and Jay didn't want to go to the hospital now, but there's a, a rule that when the ambulance comes, they can't release you. The hospital has to release you. So they took Jay away in, in an ambulance, and uh, and the the uh, owner of the comedy store, Mitzi Shore, sent somebody out to get me and said, come on inside, let's settle this strike right now. So, <laughs> so hey, Jay's, uh, Jay's sacrifice uh, might have actually brought an end to that strike. That's, uh, that's pretty great. Um, one of the stories that I covered earlier in the week was some comments from David Zucker, the director of Airplane, who said that the jokes in Airplane, the film Airplane, which was only 42 years old, would not fly today. And he's essentially saying that whatever you want to call it, wokeness, political correctness, is ruining comedy today. Is that something that you agree with as somebody that still performs and is more active than almost any comedian I know? Do you think wokeness is having a deleterious effect on comedy today? Oh, absolutely, and and it's and it's been around for a long time. Lenny Bruce went to jail for it, mm-hmm. you know. Uh, it's it's it, but it's gotten a, a great uh, groundswell now. You know, the far left. It's not. It's not. You know, liberals and conservatives have always been able to get along, and uh, and and they both believe in free speech and dissent. You know, the left doesn't. You know, um, uh, it, it, they they just don't, and they that's Jerry Seinfeld and uh, Chris Rock won't work college campuses anymore. You know. Um, uh, I, I just read this woman, Ann Coulter, graduated from Cornell, and she went back to Cornell to um, speak her alma mater. And they, she had to walk off the stage after seven minutes. They were banging, you know, making noise and everything and, and screaming so that she couldn't speak. This is happening to comedians, you know. Uh, you know, the, the I, I try to talk to them as much as I can, but sometimes I lose my temper. You know, the the thousands of men and women died so we could have the first amendment the right to, we right to speak our mind out we can say whatever we want to say you, you don't have to listen to us you can turn us off you can walk out the door you know but that's what we have free speech in this country uh the the, the first amendment you know the politically correct police you know uh, and we don't know who they are by the way you know the woke people. We don't know who they are. We know who the Moose, the Kiwanis, the Elks, the JCs, the Benet Brith. We know who, uh, you know, we know who the Democrats, the Republicans, the Independents. You know, we know who everybody is, but we don't know who they are, and we keep apologizing to them. You know, <laughs> for and, and once they see to me, comedians are the last bastion of freedom of speech. You know, once they start telling us what we must say. We're, their next step is to telling us what we must, you know, what we must, must think, you know, how we're supposed to think. They're going to tell us what to say and then what to think, and then we might as well become a communist nation. You know? No, no, it no, is no. it really just crazy. I'd say some of that craziness was on display this past weekend on uh, Saturday Night Live, uh, where Dave Chappelle was hosting, and there's a little bit of his monologue where he was talking about the Kanye West situation. You can say anti-Semitic things. And Adidas can't trap me. Now what? Adidas immediately. (laughs) Ironically, Adidas was founded by Nazis. And they were offended. I guess the students surpassed the teacher. 
Now, uh, Dave Chappelle did a lot of controversial stuff, and it, I didn't get to watch all of his monologue, but he didn't mention the controversy swir- swirling around his own uh, hosting of Saturday Night Live, where apparently some of the writers on Saturday Night Live actually were either, I don't know if they went through with this, but they were prepared to boycott him because of jokes that he made about trans people in a Netflix special last year. Could you have seen that years ago, Tom, where writers on a comedy show would actually be boycotting um, a comedian because of some jokes that he made in an unrelated stand-up special? I mean, I'm sure that you and Tim Reed, as an interracial, early interracial comedy duo, had to deal with your fair share of controversy and your fair share of boycotts. But to have the writers on a show boycott the very show that they're working on because they don't like some of the jokes that a comic has made, is this a new era in comedy? Yeah, Saturday Night Live used to be anti-establishment, and now they have become the establishment. You know, that's, you know, your late night talk show host. Johnny Carson never got into political material because he, he said we're a comedy show. Right, well, he made fun of everybody, Democrats, yeah, Republicans, everybody. Late, late night talk show hosts now have become pro- progressive activists. You know, uh, <clears throat> you know the, 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 it, it's what they're doing to comedy. I, I have to tell you, I was, uh, this is my 52nd year of being a stand-up comedian. Wow. And I... I I'm so glad that I was a comedian in the era, and still am a comedian, but in the era that I was a comedian with some of the greatest comedians of the, in the history of America. I wouldn't want to start out being a comedian today. You know, I, I wouldn't want to be a comedian in today's environment. It, uh, you know, f- for, <clears throat> again, you know, you, you don't have to listen to us. You don't have to pay to see us. You can turn us off. You can walk out. You can ask for your money back. You know, but you can't tell anybody what they must say other than, you know, fire in a crowded theater. You know, I mean, uh, it, it just when Tim Reed and I were America's first black and white comedy team, if they would have seen the material we did, they, they would run us out of town on a rail. <laughs> no. We attacked every stereotype, me being white, Tim being black. We talked about all the white stereotypes of blacks and all the black stereotypes of whites, and we did made we made jokes about it. Now our whole act wasn't racial, you know, but we did a lot of stuff that had nothing to do with race at all. But the mere fact that we were on stage having a dialogue together, we were doing what America was not doing. You know, all over America in 1969 when we started out, 1970. You know, we were just a few years removed from Martin Luther King being assassinated, Robert Kennedy being assassinated. The Civil Rights Movement uh, Act was signed in 1964. That was, we were just a few years away from that taking off, you know. Uh, <clears throat> so, you know, when, when we, we started out, there were riots all over the country. There were uh, students were protesting the, the Vietnam War. You know, so in all over America, they're saying, you know what we need? We need more discourse among the races. We need more discourse among the races. You know what they're saying? 40, 52 years later, you know, we need more discourse among the <laughs> <laughs> We're talking with Tom Dreesen, uh, a celebrated stand-up comedian who has been in show business by his own admission for over half a century. You can check out his website, uh, TomDreesen.com. I also strongly recommend his book, Still Standing. There's a ton of great, uh, a ton of great stories in there. Tom, you uh, referenced your your comedy duo with Tim Reed. If people haven't seen that or haven't heard that, there's some great clips on uh, on YouTube, which people can take a look at, including this. 
Let's change this whole setting here. Okay. All right, let's go to 47 and Drexel. 47 and Drexel. Yeah. <laughs> I'm waiting for a bus. You're going to be another black man. Uh-huh. You're going to come up and start a conversation. Now I'm waiting for the bus. You're waiting for the bus. Yeah. And I'm a brother. You're a brother. Cool now. <laughs> See you, man. Hey, man. You're going to die of natural causes. Some black guy in a natural going to kill you. Oh. It almost seems to me, Tom, that the that comedians today being pressured to shy away from racial humor, it's almost exacerbating racial tensions by uh, kind of pitting different races against one another rather than have people of different races, be they performers or people in the audience, all being prepared to laugh together. Would you agree with that? And I totally agree with that. You know, what, when when the, the used to be in comedy, they'd say, well, you know, you can't do jokes about Jewish people unless you're Jewish. And you can't do jokes about black people unless you're black. And you can't do jokes about Italians unless you're an Italian, you know, uh, which is utter nonsense. Because when the when the Jewish comedian goes on stage and he starts talking about his family and his mom and dad, and you say, well, I'm not Jewish, but you know what, my my parents were like that. You know, and then you see the black guy talking about things about his life and you say, you know, I'm not black, but, you know, I did things like that or my parents are like that. We find out through humor we have so much more in common, you know, and, and it, it gets down to the basics, you know, uh, you know but are, do we have cultural differences? Of course we do. Do we have past history differences? Of course we do. You know, if I were to tell you, I, I could tell you that you, you probably know this, Frank, but 90 5% of America does not know that some of the largest lynchings in America were of Italians. Mm-hmm. They had lynched in, in Hansville, Louisiana, in, in uh, uh, 1891. Yeah, no, absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. I, I do wonder, Tom, where the line is, right? I mean, uh, there's. It, it seems like um, everyone rails against cancel culture until a comedian says something or a performer does something that just goes too far, and then there's calls for boycotts. I mean, we saw this with uh, Kathy Griffin when uh, she was holding the the he- severed head of Donald Trump on a magazine. We saw this with uh, with Kanye West uh, on uh, his, some of his comments that he made about Jews. We saw this with Dave Chappelle with some of the comments that he made about trans people. It is, I mean, how do you know as a performer where the line is these days at what is a cancelable offense? Well, you know, today, today you don't, you right. don't know. Right. They'll create something new every day. You know, you know, it's, you know, travel at your own risk. You know, if you're going to go into this precarious business of show business and especially stand-up comedy, I, I don't know how many times I've heard great actors, Gregory Peck, Kirk Douglas, sitting with these guys when I toured with Frank Sinatra, that would say, I wouldn't be a stand-up comedian. These are brilliant actors, mm-hmm. uh, singers. Frank Sinatra had the highest regard for stand-up comedians, the highest regard. He he said it time and time again. One time down in Florida, the, the, well, we were doing a big show down in Florida, um, that there was a big table of 20 people having dinner, and this woman was, in, you know, the governor's wife was fawning over Frank saying, you know, I don't know how you do that, how you go out there every night and sing songs. And he looked at, I was at the end of the table, he said, he's got the hardest job in show business. Stand-up comedians, that's the toughest job in show business, because it is. I mean, but you travel at your own risk when you go into this business of stand-up comedy. You know, you have to decide, you know, what kind of comedian you want to be and then go for it. You know, I personally have always – I just wanted to make everybody laugh. 
You know, I didn't mm-hmm. want to make a, a specific uh, age group or ethnic group laugh. I, I've tried to write material that can make grandma and grandpa, mom and dad, and the kids laugh, regardless of their ethnicity. You know, um, that's just what I chose, you know, at, at the time. But if you're going to be controversial, if you're going to go out there and be controversial, then be prepared, you know, uh, that there are people. Here's what I say. There are people that won't pay to see you, but they should not boycott or they should not set set up a group to try to get you out mm-hmm. of the business mm-hmm. you know you have the right to say whatever you want to say you know in our nation you know one of the great uh, one of the great prop comics of all time was Gallagher who we lost a few days ago curious if you could share with folks uh, what interactions you might have had with Gallagher over the years and what about his humor was so different and so groundbreaking at the time that he started performing what they, you know, the interesting thing, and I was saying, uh, talking to my our friend, my friend David Letterman the other day, we were talking about Gallagher because we started out, David Letterman and I and Gallagher, uh, we we worked in the same club. There was a little club called Show Business in the Valley. Dave Letterman lived one block from it. A guy named Murray Langston owned the club. He he later became the unknown comedian, and he was uh, an extra on. The, I'm not an extra. He was a, 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 a cast member on the Sonny and Cher show, and he took all of his money and he invested in this club and in it was Gallagher you know Gallagher was one of the guys that was working there now Gallagher Leo Gallagher was his name he was one of the brightest stand-up comedians I ever met he could write material that was clever and unique and it was brilliant and yet when he died his obituary said the comedian who smashed watermelons you know that that's what they remembered him for because that's what he did in his act at some point in his act but he could do, he did a whole hour you know, an hour and a half, and it would be brilliant, clever material. He was an extremely bright guy, but somehow they remembered him for smashing that watermelon more than anything else. You know? Well, do you think that's unfair? Do you think he should have a broader comic legacy? It, it, again, that—that's the, the, the risk he took. Mm-hmm. When you are going to when you're going to do something like that, you might get a, a hook. Sometimes a hook in comedy is really good. You know, if you can come up with a hook, Rodney, I get no respect. We say, oh, Rodney Dangerfield. Can we talk? Oh, that's Joan Rivers. The devil made me do it. Oh, that's Flip Wilson. You know, if if you can find a hook in comedy, that's terrific. But sometimes that hook also will be something you'll be remembered for forever, whether you like it or not. You know? Right, right. I'm guessing uh, Henny Youngman probably didn't see the first line of his obituary reading, take my wife, please. Um, you uh, you were also in the Navy, served four years in the Navy. I'm curious, we were talking a little bit about the military last hour and uh, how, you know, how this it can be a character-building experience for certain people. How did you find that humor served you in the military did it help you get through some tough times yes it did and and, and by the way <clears throat> i had no idea that i was ever going to be a comedian at that time you know i spent four years in the navy and i served nine months in a marine corps unit called NEGDF, naval emergency ground defense force we were trained at quonset point rhode island and, I, uh, and anyhow, so, yeah, I was always the guy that would go around the ship and, 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 and when I, I served on two aircraft carriers, the USS Tarawa and the USS Essex. And I was always the guy who was going to tell the latest funny story or the latest joke or to look at the humorous side of things. No matter how bad things got, I could somehow look at something and make a joke about it. Uh, and, and I didn't know at the time what I was doing. But today I realized through all the research and everything that's done about humor, how humor is healing and how laughter, when a human being laughs, first of all, 
when you laugh at a comedian or you're laughing at some situation, the brain can't think of two thoughts at the same time. So it's a psychological deterrent. You know, when you're when you're laughing at a comedian, you're not thinking your problems. So it's a psychological deterrent. But now they found out at UCLA, they did a lot of research when the human body laughs, that endorphins are released from the brain into the bloodstream. And so after a hearty laugh and you, you've laughed so hard and tears are running down your eyes and you go, oh, and the sense of well-being comes over you after that big laugh. It's because your body's gone through an actual chemical change. So laughter is not only psychologically a deterrent, it's physiologically therapeutic. So therefore, comedians are physicians of the soul, Frank, and you can call me Dr. Dreesen if you'd like. (laughs) Uh, Obviously, so much of uh, your career has been tied to the career of Frank Sinatra. We've talked to you before. You were actually one of the pallbearers at his funeral. Is there anyone alive today, any entertainer, that could be described as this generation's Frank Sinatra? No, but I would, you know, no one has that incredible following but i i did some shows with michael buble and i really think he's an incredible singer and an uh, and, a, and a great performer there was something about frank sinatra that that created such excitement with audiences it was his interpretation of lyrics you know his music became if you were a sinatra fan there's a lot of people that didn't like frank sinatra and that's that's the prerogative but frank sinatra was a star for over 60 years at age 78 and 79, he was filling 20,000-seat arenas. Mm. He he sold out in Japan a 20,000-seat arena at age 78. You know, in, in Brazil, many, many years ago, he sold 175,000 people came to see Frank Sinatra. A lot of rock groups might have done that, but no single performer. So there's there's it's hard to compare his career to anybody else's. Arguably, it's the greatest career show business ever known. Because forget about the fact that he was this brilliant, brilliant singer, maybe arguably the greatest pop singer of all time. But you forget he was an actor. Uh, an incredible actor. I mean, you look at From Here to Eternity, the Manchurian Candidate. I mean, even beyond musicals like uh, Guys and Dolls, he was uh, an incredible actor. We've been talking with Tom Dreesen. Tom, we have a lot of listeners in uh, in Florida because of so many New Yorkers and other folks from around the country that have uh, relocated down there. I know you're performing in uh, Miami on uh, January 28th. What are What are people going to enjoy if they go to see this show and how can they get tickets? Well, uh, you can go to, I think, concert. Oh, geez, I, I should have that information. And, uh, I'm, the, there's a guy named Michael Martucci, uh, who's a wonderful, wonderful singer. And he does, he's got an, a 22 piece orchestra. It's the old Blue Eyes Orchestra. It's a lot of the guys who played with Frank when they were younger guys. And he, he's, he pays tribute to Frank with this music and the orchestra. And I do stand up comedy and I do the storytelling of Frank, you know. Uh, and we we worked together in Atlantic City, and it was such a big hit that we we're now going on January 28th. We're going to be at, at Turnberry in Aventura, Florida, and I, 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 geez, I this is terrible. It's at the JW Marriott in in Turnberry, and on January 28th, and there, you and tickets are available. But darn, I, I forgot. I think it's concert. I should have had that information. Oh no, well, it's my fault for throwing throw, throwing that at you, you. You can go to my website, TomDreesen.com. TomDreesen.com. I'm sorry I missed you when you were uh, in Atlantic City. I heard that it was quite a show, and uh, I look forward to seeing you the next time you're uh, you're up in the Northeast, Tom. It's always such a treat to talk with you. Thanks for taking the time. 
You're welcome, Frank. It's good to talk to you. All right. If you want to comment on any portion of my discussion with Tom Dreesen, you're welcome to give me a call. 800-848-9222. That's 800-848-9222. This is The Other Side of Midnight. Straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight. Midnight. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. This is Honey, Honey by ABBA. Uh, Ani Frid Lingstad from ABBA is celebrating her 77th birthday today. So I know a lot of ABBA fans are out there celebrating. So uh, we thought we'd celebrate by playing a little ABBA. So happy birthday to her. Uh, 800-848-9222. If you're ever curious about what kind of music we're playing on this show, just join our Facebook group. Just search... Morano Radio Fans and Haters on Facebook, and it's a forum that's meant to be a um, a place for people who listen to the show to communicate with one another, uh, but we also post all the songs that we play there each and every break, because if you ever hear, oh, well, what's that song, what's this song, uh, then, um, you know, you might be curious about what it is, and you could just join the Facebook group and see that. And I do usually post the articles that we talk about on my Facebook page at facebook.com slash moranofan. So if you're ever curious about some of the articles that we cite, just go to that uh, Facebook page, facebook.com slash moranofan, and you can read them. I will say this weekend is very interesting. Saturday, I don't check electronics after Smirconish ends at 10 a.m. Eastern. So I, um, you know, before 10 o'clock, before usually 9 o'clock, I'll go through some of the Facebook things. And I see a whole bunch of people are commenting on my Facebook page. So I go and I see what what are people commenting about. And there's someone named Frank Morano, who's not me, who's thanking people for their comments, saying, oh, I appreciate you being such a nice fan of my program. They're including all sorts of smiley faces and emoticons, which I would never, ever in a million years use. I never, I don't even know how to do an emoticon. And, um... I have seen this person, and he's telling the listeners or the people commenting on Facebook, hey, please send me a friend request. And so somebody was out there impersonating me and uh, trying to get them to send him a friend request. Now, I don't know what sort of nefarious things this guy was up to, but I I went out and warned people, please don't assume that this is me. It is not. And I would never ever ask you to contact me and send a friend request uh, <laughs> on Facebook. So please be, just be careful with whenever you see something like that. There's a lot of scammers out there in the digital world. I changed my password just in case, but it wasn't a case of my being hacked. It was a, an instance of, um, you know, someone impersonating my account. So that's that. You know, it is interesting. One of the things that, um, my, you know, our son is almost a year old now. He's 10 days shy of a year old. 
So he's really becoming very communicative. And even though he can't really formulate speech yet, he says a couple of words here and there, but he can't formulate speech yet. He's becoming much more like a, a regular person. And he's got a great sense of humor and everything and loves to play with us and loves to crawl around loves when we pick him up and everything. But um, here's the problem, right? Whenever he's doing something that that we don't want him to do, like there's this protective tape on the couch that's designed to keep the cats from scratching the couch. Whenever he pulls it off, we reprimand him and we yell at him, no, and we'll take him away from there. Now he's also taking to um, banging on this great grandfather clock that we have that two listeners, uh, Bridget and Robert Guzzi, were kind enough to give us. Big shout out to them. And he bangs on it, and we we yell him harshly. I said, no, and we'll take him away from there. And he thinks we're playing with him, and he thinks it's a game. And so we yell at him and say no, and he laughs. He laughs. And even, you know, when he was doing one of these things, I don't remember if it was the grandfather clock or the um, removing the tape from the sofa, but my wife gave him like a, a light tap on the buttocks. Like to let him know that he was doing the wrong thing. And, again, she didn't hit him hard, but he left because he thought that she was playing with him. So I'm curious how people that have been parents of a one-year-old deal with that, where how they make sure a child knows that what he's doing is wrong and how you get around that. Until next hour, help control the pet population. Get your dog or cat spayed or neutered. This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Now, here's Frank Morano. This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Moreno. I'll tell you, uh, one thing I saw, which is kind of cool, I just posted it to Facebook, facebook.com slash Moreno fan. Julian Lennon, the son of the late John Lennon, ran into, totally by happenstance, his father's fellow bandmate, Paul McCartney. And he posted a photo of the two of them running into one another And um, he uh, referred to him as uh, Uncle Paul. He said, it's amazing who you run into in in an airport lounge. None other than Uncle Paul. And then Julian tweeted alongside the photos, so, so lovely. And what are the chances? You know, it's funny. I am telling you, I am a big believer in synchronicity. I am less sure of the causes of synchronicity. Stuff like this happens to me all the time, all the time. And I'll tell you what happened. I, I, it's just, it's really wild. Now, now when, whenever you're talking computers, it's a little bit different because so much of what comes up when you do a Google search or when you're seeing something on social media is based on your, your search habits. But I had just read this article. I had just read this article about Julian Lennon running into Paul McCartney. I just read it. And then I said, okay, well, that's interesting. And then I said, let me also um, search what Tom Dreesen's favorite song is. And I figured it would be some 
Sinatra song because, you know, I always try to, whenever we have a guest on this show, pick some bumper music that is appropriate to, you know, what whatever it is that they're talking about. And so one of the first articles, that was my search item, Tom Dreesen favorite song. And one of the first items that came up with was an article about Natalie Cole, the singer Natalie Cole. And it says, um, it, you know, uh, I'll spare you the headline. But the first sentence is, comedian Tom Dreesen is the only person I know whose dots connect from Frank Sinatra to the late Hoot McInerney, from the chairman of the board to the chairman of a Detroit-based chain of car dealerships. And then the next sentence is, and this is an article from six years ago, he also knew Natalie Cole, who died on uh, New Year's Eve. And then, wouldn't you know it, in this article, he's talking about um, music that Natalie Cole liked. And she, he asked Natalie Cole her favorite song, and in this article, it says she chose Imagine by John Lennon. Now, what are the chances that that would be the very next article that I would read after seeing that article about Julian Lennon and Paul McCartney. Now, it's true. I read it online, so perhaps it's possible that uh, it brought, the algorithm brought uh, uh, to the forefront of my Google search items articles that had John Lennon in it because I had just read an article that mentioned John Lennon. Totally possible, but I don't know. Stuff like this happens to me all the time, all the time. Uh, where where there's just stuff that's a little too coincidental, and it happens to me all the time. And uh, Julian Lennon, I'd love to get him on the show one of these days. He's an interesting guy. He just came out with a new album, but he's also a photographer and a uh, filmmaker. But it was nice to see him post that uh, that photo of uh, of he and Paul McCartney. And uh, it's just crazy to think in the year 2022, you can still see Lennon and McCartney together. So that's really neat. All right. Uh, by the way, he, um, Julian Lennon, is the inspiration for the Beatles hit song, Hey Jude, that was written for Julian after Lennon and his first wife decided to get divorced. And obviously, I think a lot of people know the story that Julian went on to have sort of a, a, a str- an estranged relationship with his father, John Lennon, but the two reconciled before John Lennon was killed. In nineteen uh, in nineteen eighty, but um, it you know it is uh, it is what it is. It was an interesting thing to see. Couple of interesting space stories that uh, that caught my eye. One was this uh, story involving a story out of Florida, where a secretive space force ship. Landed at Cape Canaveral over the weekend, creating a series of sonic booms and flashes that left some locals fearing everything from a meteor strike to a UFO. Now, it wasn't either of those things. Nobody in Florida, nobody near Cape Canaveral needs to panic. It was a 30-foot-long robotic 37B military ship which has gained fame both for its secret missions as well as its ability to stay in orbit for so long. It ended its most recent trip at NASA's Kennedy Space Center in Florida on Saturday. As the spacecraft headed east across Florida around 5 a.m. before landing, dozens of sonic booms were reported. 
Some Central Florida residents said they felt their homes shake. And a few people actually suggested the possibility of a meteor or a UFO. Curious. I know we do have a lot of listeners in Central Florida. Curious if anyone heard this or experienced this and what you thought it was, if you did. 800-848-9222. One Twitter user wrote, holy crap, was driving south almost to the Cape early this morning when I saw, I don't know what streaked overhead, meteor, UFO, everyone on the road hit their brakes. Figured Twitter would know, LOL, but I didn't think it was going to be X-37. Um, so I, the booms apparently could be heard from Titusville to Kissimmee, a span of about 60 miles. That's wild. That is wild. The unmanned little spacecraft, which looks like a mini shuttle, spent a record-breaking 908 days in orbit or 118 days more than its previous record. It's a reusable Boeing vehicle now done with its sixth mission. It has traveled 1.3 billion miles over the course of 3,774 days in space, and it's been whizzing around Earth on various trips for the last 12 years. So I think that's pretty interesting. Nice-looking little spaceship, I must say. 800-848-9222 if you want to comment on anything we're talking about. Let me say hello to Eddie in Nassau County. Hello, Eddie. Hey, good morrow, Frank, and the rest of the crew out there. You know, you were talking with Frank, I mean, Tom Dreesen a little bit earlier, and they brought up uh, to mind a couple of quotes that Frank Sinatra was supposed to have said. One was, dare to wear the face of the clown. And I heard that also Frank Sinatra was once quoted as saying, Rock and roll was only played by cretinous goons. (laughs) I never heard that one, but it strikes me as something that I could see Frank Sinatra saying. Yeah, well, I just thought that maybe you'd just enjoy that laugh. I certainly do. That's great stuff, Eddie. Thank you. Keep keep it up. You're doing great. I appreciate that. Thank you. Uh, 800-848-9222. Hey, uh, speaking of space, I'm a Seinfeld fan, as I think you know. There is one episode of Seinfeld that deals with Jerry watching a film that has something to do with space. And this was reverberating in my head for a big portion of the day yesterday. And I'll tell you why. I don't know if you remember the episode. It's a good episode. It's early in the series. And uh, Jerry is asleep on his couch. And he wakes, if I'm remembering the scene correctly, he wakes up and the television is on. And he sees, and we don't, we didn't know it was Larry David at the time because we didn't know it was Larry David. But you see Larry David dressed as a spaceman, um, and he's dressed all in gray, like a space outfit, and he's got weird goggles on. And you hear this Larry David character on television say, "Look, Sigmund, look at the sky. The planet's on fire. It is just as you prophesized. The planet of our solar system is." So, <laughs> so if I'm remembering the what the chronology of the episode accurately, and it's been a while since I saw it, so I may not be. Jerry wakes up in the middle of the night, and he writes something down, and he thinks it's so funny. 
he and and I've d- come to start doing this, right? I I have not just a pad next to my bed my bedroom, you know, next to my bed, next to my bureau, but I have a space pen so I don't even have to get up upright. I can write upside down because like Jerry Seinfeld, I'm a fan of the space pen. $25 at Staples, by the way. So he writes down something that he thinks is funny. And then, as so often happens, he can't remember what he wrote down. And the note is totally indecipherable. He can't remember. So the whole rest of the episode involves Jerry showing this chicken scratch to people that he's encountering and ask them, asking them what they think it says. What have I done? What I can't read this. Fulman, Hertel, Baum. <laughs> I got up last night. I wrote this down. I thought I had this great bit. Wait a second. Wait a second. Fax me some halibut. <laughs> is that funny? Is that is that a joke? No. Let me see that. Don't mess with Johnny. Johnny. Johnny who? Johnny Carson? Did I insult Johnny on the Tonight Show? Did you mess with Johnny, Jerry? I think I'm having a heart attack. I don't think that's it. (laughs) I'm not kidding. What does that mean? Well, what do you think? Salami, salami, bologna. Salami, salami, bologna? (laughs) Oh, yes, yes. Mm Mm-hmm. Cleveland 117, San Antonio 109. (laughs) So uh, that's a running gag throughout the episode. He's got this chicken scratch, and then he's trying to get people to say what it says. Now, later in the episode, and it's not really spoiling much because this is not integral to the plot, but it is integral to the anecdote that I'm trying to share with you. He sees that film, and it's a fictional film. It's not not a film that was released with that flaming globes of Sigmund quote, and he realizes what he wrote down. And he realizes he wrote down flaming globes of Sigmund. And he he says, as soon as he's awake and realizes this, that's not funny. Now, why is, it, why is that in my head? Well, because I can't tell you how often there is this period when I'm trying to fall asleep from the time that I'm lying in bed fully conscious and awake with my eyes closed to the time I actually drift off into dreamland just as I'm just as I'm drifting off into REM land rapid eye movement just as I'm starting to dream and realize that I'm slowly falling asleep there's a period where I think my thinking is very vivid and sometimes I get some really terrific ideas about guests that I should interview, about uh, different thoughts that I should have. And that's why the pad is there for me to record my notes. I have to tell you, 80 to 90% of what occurs to me while I'm asleep or right before I fall into hardcore sleep, and I write down and think this is going to be brilliant, it's going to be a great talk topic or it's going to be hysterical, I write down these topics and I look, 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 look at them when I wake up. Almost overwhelmingly, this is total trash. It's total dreck. And I look at this, and this happened to me the other day. I said, it, "I actually wrote down the words, talk about crossing the street. I wrote that down. I want you to think about that. I got up and was so convinced that people would want to have a discussion 
about crossing the street that I actually wrote it down. And then, of course, I realized, of course, nobody cares about crossing the street. Nobody's going to care about me crossing the street. Why did I think anybody was going to care about crossing the street? But sure enough, when you're asleep or half asleep, for some reason, there is something that comes over you where you completely lose your sense of what's good and what's bad. And I remember on Sunday night, because I try and grab two hours before I drive into work of sleep, I was convinced that I had come up with just one great talk topic after another. And I look at my notes after I wake up from this two-hour nap. Not one of them was good. Not one. I mean, it was all stuff like that. Basically, uh, ordinary um, stuff that I think was not only not necessarily relatable, it wasn't even interesting. It wasn't interesting to me, let alone anybody else. By the way, uh, speaking of things that may be interesting, may not be interesting, um, we are going to go through the mail in a few minutes. So if you want to be heard, we're going to go through. We have a collection of snail mail, email, Facebook correspondence, and even some Twitter correspondence. So if you want to be heard, you can uh, try and get in an email to frank.morano at wabcradio.com. That's frank.morano at wabcradio.com. Or you can find me on Twitter at Frank Morano. You want to call in and uh, comment on anything we're talking about, you can do so at 800-848-9222. We have uh, eight open phone lines, no guests for the rest of the show. So there'll be plenty of opportunity for us to correspond about uh, the different things that we're uh, that we're talking about. And, you know, there was an interesting story that I saw over the weekend, and and I'm going to tell you about it next hour, about smartphones and children. Sure enough, there is a boarding school that took away smartphones for children, and the results of what transpired there may surprise you. So we're going to tell you about that. I'll tell you, the more that I read and the more that I research and the more that I observe and think about what we see with smartphones, the more I become convinced that they do not play a positive role in society. Now, look, I I have a smartphone. It's in front of me right now. But uh, I really am trying to use it less and less. And um, then whenever I pick up my phone, because I, I try not to use it as much, I see all these missed calls and text messages and this and that and this notification and that notification. And it really, it's gotten almost like Pavlov's dog. Now I have so begun to associate the smartphone with a bunch of emails, text messages and phone calls that I don't want that now whenever I pick up my phone and look at it, the first, I'm just overcome with a sense of foreboding and unhappiness, honestly. But then what happens, because I that leads me to pick up the phone less and less, I miss a lot of important messages. I remember um, yesterday, for instance, somebody that's on the Cats at Night show messaged me a question about one of the few areas that I know something about, which is minor party politics in New York, and I didn't even see the message until after the show. So, you know, it's sort of becoming a self-defeating strategy. But I'm going to try and find – I have to somehow adjust my relationship with with technology somehow. I've got to figure out a good – a healthier balance than the one that uh, – than the one that I seem to be enjoying. All right. We're going to go through the mail in uh, just a moment. You can call in at 800-848-9222. This is The Other Side of Midnight. Straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. 
Hi, it's Ernie Anastas. You know, your thoughts can affect how you feel, and how you feel can impact your thoughts. Addressing your mind and body connection is the key to improving your overall wellness. Bergen Newbridge Medical Center is the largest hospital in New Jersey, providing comprehensive, equitable, compassionate, and high-quality emergency inpatient and outpatient medical care, plus mental health services and substance use disorder treatment. The Bergen Newbridge team can address your total health needs in one convenient location. Call 201-225-7130 for an appointment or newbridgehealth.org. It's the other side of midnight with Frank Morano. Lennon singing Imagine, and uh, this is uh, very apropos of the discussion that we are having. All right. Uh, if you want to comment, you can do so at 800-848-9222. For those of you that prefer the written word, this is your time. It's time for... This is very nice. This is from somebody I know, actually. This is from Barbara Fisher of Staten Island. Although she looks like she spelled my name wrong on the on the envelope here. It looks like it's M-A-R-A-N-O instead of M-O-R-A-N-O. Well, can't be complaining about that. This is it looks like a check. Very nice. We like getting checks. Well, this is nice. She sent a $35 check to the National Psoriasis Foundation for the recent walk that I did for them. That's very nice. I... Uh, Thank you, Barbara. If you're listening, or uh, if not, then I will send you a proper thank you note. I'm a little bit behind on my thank you note. So those of you that donated, I will get around to you. All right, this is from, is this Marianne? Yes, I believe it is. Okay. Dear Frank, I am a retired university employee. I am used to censorship. I was volunteering in a Zoom group meeting and spoke to a person named Elliot. Elliot donned a blonde mullet haircut, heavy glasses. In my conversation with him, I called him a he. A colleague of mine in this meeting scolded me and said, Marianne, Elliot wished to be referred as as she slash her. I responded, whatever. In the past, 
I was paid to speak to students in a gender-specific way. As a volunteer, should I comply with the pronoun police? I call it as I see it. This choice of pronouns is their choice, not mine. Chow Marion. Well, it's a good choice, Marion. I, I, I recognize how frustrating it is when you're volunteering your time for people to give you a hard time. And it's it's just the worst. And this has happened to me in politics. It's happened to me with some charities that I volunteered for. You think to yourself, you're volunteering your time. You don't really want to be given grief because maybe you did the wrong thing. From where you're coming from, Marianne, I think it depends on whether this was an innocent mistake on your part or whether you were intentionally trying to be belligerent, right? So if you called this person a he because it looked like a he... Then, like, look, nobody should give you a hard time, right? But if you know this person wanted to be called she and you're still sort of out of spite it, calling them he, I don't think that's right. Even if you are volunteering, I'm a big believer that you should call people whatever they want to be called. If they want to be called they, them, he, him, I think you should make an effort to try not to go out of your way to be insulting to them. That's my view. And... um by the same token, I think everybody in that group, that Zoom group, and I don't know what the nature of the Zoom group was, I think everybody in that Zoom group should try to be a little understanding that in this new era of everybody gets to choose their own pronoun, that maybe, you know, they should cut people some slack, right? One of the things that really, and as we see, as you might have heard with my interview with Ollie London this week, is the pronouns can change. One day you can be a they, the next day you can be a... A he. And one of the things that I liked about Ali London the last time that I interviewed him when he was a them is I said, you know, I'm sorry. I apologize in advance if I use any of the improper pronouns. And I love what Ali London said. What they said to me at the time was, you know what? We're chilled out. You know, uh, we're not going to get crazy. And that's how everybody should be. You can't get crazy when people make an honest mistake. All right. This is a nice looking package here. This is from Rita in Pennsylvania. Now, there's a package within a package. And there's a yellow piece like look like yellow legal paper that says, Dear Frank, I mailed this to you in late September and just got it back from the post office. I guess they couldn't find a P.O. box. Anyway, hopefully the second time is the charm. Love your program. Best wishes, Rita. All right, let's see what this is. Oh, it's got some tissue paper. It's wrapped in tissue paper. And it is, uh, let me hold it up to the microphone so everybody can see it. Uh, <laughs> oh, I love this. Alien socks. Some socks wow. with a flying saucer. Fousey's men's socks. It's serious socks for not so serious people. And then there's a letter. Uh, Dear Frank, recently I was vacationing at Cape May. Oh, Cape May. And saw these socks in one of the shops. I immediately thought of you and just had to get them for you. Later that same night, I was listening to a podcast of your show, and you were relating your hoarding tendencies. Yes, you are a hoarder. And that Rachel asked that you tell people to stop sending you stuff. Well, I decided that a pair of socks will only add clutter to your sock drawer. So here they are. Wear them in good health. I love your show. What I don't hear live I catch on your podcast. Thanks for your very entertaining and informative program. You are a gem. Wow. Uh, May God bless you and your beautiful family. Rita of Reading, Pennsylvania. That is very nice. I'm going to save that. All right. On to Twitter correspondence. Matt writes, what's up, Frank? I listened to the first 10 to 15 minutes of your interview with J.C. Cole. 
Unfortunately, my ride home ended, and I didn't hear the rest. It was possibly the most intriguing guest I've heard on your show so far. But food and bed is most prevalent thing on my mind when I get home from work at near 2 a.m., so I didn't hear the whole interview. To my surprise, when I searched for J.C. Cole, and real estate investor or global disaster expert on any other scenario, I can think of the only thing that comes up is you and your interview with him. Impressive marketing, by the way, but my question is, can you point me in the right direction to learn more? about him and the various projects he's working on. One last thing before I send. Dude, I would love to have you over for a drink someday. Peace out. Well, thank you, Matt. Not sure where you live, but if it's in a convenient location, I would be happy to come. Uh, Also on Twitter, Juliana writes, and I believe Juliana listens to us in Australia. Um, Juliana writes, Mr. Frank Morano, you should be the next president of the of the America, and Mr. Curtis Lee should be vice president. Well, Juliana, I appreciate the thought (laughs) And uh, I probably should be president, but um, Curtis and I actually live in the same state, so we could not run together. It's That's a Trump-DeSantis kind of a thing. So the uh, 12th Amendment makes that uh, unlikely. And, you know, and I, honestly, I'm having too much fun to be on the radio. I'd have to leave radio to, uh, you know, to run for president. So I would not want to do that anytime soon. All right. Uh, and there's too much travel involved. Um, this is from Facebook. That Maurice writes on our... Conversation about Nick Cannon yesterday. Nick's baby 11 is officially enough for a basketball team. He can call them, he can name them the Knicks. Okay. Not bad. All right. Gary, uh, Gary writes, I like time travel movies too. I can recommend a very interesting French film called Le Jet, composed entirely of black and white photos. It deals with a man trying to escape a nuclear holocaust by traveling in time. English narration makes things more enjoyable. That actually does sound really interesting, and I actually will check that out. Henry Duran writes, Pence sounds as honest as Bill Clinton. Pence and others mentioned don't have a chance. It's either Trump or DeSantis. All right, Henry. Uh, This was a comment on Facebook, Not uh, not a private message, but it's one worth mentioning, at least for me, because I was so surprised at this. This was a comment made by Verita. The mouth click, too much and annoying. I tell you because I care. And I responded to this because I honestly didn't know what she was talking about. I said, what mouth click? Apparently, according to Verita, she says that I make a clicking sound with my mouth. Honestly, I have never heard this. And I listened to b- back to a fair number of my own tapes And I hear feedback from everybody that has all sorts of negative things to say about my presentation. This is one thing I have never heard. I hope this isn't true because I can see how this would be annoying, number one. And number two, if this is something I'm doing, I'm not sure it's something I can correct because it's not something I'm aware of. You know, for instance, if I I, there are certain phrases that I use, certain words that I overuse. That's all correctable because I'm aware of it. But if I am, if I have a clicking mouth, that's a big problem. Big problem for yeah, me. What the hell are you talking about? All right. Uh, this is um, an email here. This is from Linda. Linda writes, hi, Frank. Because you and your wife are such loving parents, Carmine is responding very appropriately 
to being reprimanded, which is absolutely fine at his young age. He's only beginning to learn what is acceptable behavior and that which is not acceptable behavior. I have found with my son, when he was your son's age, he learned not to touch something by me saying no and taking him away from the object. That's basically what we're doing. For instance, the clock you spoke of, just saying no while taking his hands from the clock. At first, he might think it's a game, but he will soon realize, usually by your facial expression and tone of voice, that he should not be pounding on the clock. Generally speaking, saying no while removing a child's hands from an object or physically taking him away from the object and or showing him how to interact with the object appropriately usually does the trick. I found tone of voice and facial expressions at your son's age showing displeasure usually change the unwanted behavior. That's what we're trying to do, honestly. But he laughs. The kid laughs. He's a jokester. God bless Carmine. He's a precious little boy, and the stories you share about him are truly endearing. Take care. Stay well, Linda. Thank you, Linda. We're gonna, so we'll stick with it. We'll stick with it, and hopefully he'll stop laughing. All right, this is an email from, uh, who wrote the Oh, this is quite lengthy. There's no way I'm reading this whole thing. This is from Dennis. Dennis writes, subject, are you serious? Frank, I don't know how much of what you say is sincere Or is it just an act for your conservative audience? (laughs) I love any email that begins that way, right? Because immediately the email is saying in its first sentence, "Eh, you don't have much credibility with me, and I don't know if you're just lying. I mean, okay. Some of your statements are pure fiction. Trump's foreign policy was a disaster. He went to North Korea and came back promising they're no longer a nuclear threat. Clearly, they did not end program. Don't you love that whenever people take issue with what I'm saying, they then fail to use proper grammar? I've noticed that. The people that tend to disagree with me are also people that are are incapable of stringing together a coherent written sentence. I have noticed that. Um, Trump's foreign policy was it is he played down NATO and used new Ukraine funds to blackmail their government to get dirt on Biden. He basically handed Syria to the Russians, abandoning the Turks. He signed surrender with Taliban to end war to end war during next administration. It almost sounds like a caveman wrote this. He signed surrender with Taliban to end war during next administration. It's like a Mongo in Blazing Saddles trying to deliver a candy gram. Then refused to work on transition. Also used the wrong then, by the way. Used T-H-A-N, not T-H-E-N. As most people are used to saying of me, it would appear this person is not so smart. All right. And then uh, he goes on to list a whole bunch of other horrible things that Trump did. And I'm not going to read them just because I'm not trying to protect Trump. But it's just it's too lengthy. So I'm not going to go through all that. All right. So, you know, you agree to disagree. This is an email from Bunny, who I guess has differing politics. Hello, Frank. This morning, I heard just a small part of your discussion about Trump. I voted for him twice. He's the best president that I can remember running this country. And I have voted left, right and not at all. The first thing he did was take care of the veterans, men and women who were having problems with their insurance. He took care of that. He began to build a wall which would have saved us billions of dollars taking care of those who do not belong here. Uninvited, unmasked, diseased cartel with their drugs killing so many of our young people. He went to China and brought back billions of dollars. I will bet that if he were president now, Putin would not have attacked Ukraine. He was strong. What we have now as a president would not be able to hold an office anywhere. 
Um, so there you have it. People can disagree. All right. Um, Lawrence writes, money, happiness, and worry. Frank, since you haven't answered many of my emails, this is a person that emails me five times a day. In the past few weeks, please do not read this. On, please do read this on the air. Once you have enough money to pay for all your necessities, plus some extra money in the bank for a rainy day, excellent. That's happiness par excellence. Too much money or wealth can cause worries and anxiety in that often rich people who own businesses spend a great deal of their waking hours. Even their dreams are awful because they're worried about their employees stealing or even people coming after him or her to rob and or kill him or her. Sincerely, Lawrence. Oh, that's awfully upbeat. Uh, This is from Al in Maryland, listening on WCBM. Hi, Frank. Knowing from hearing your shows and hearing your affinity for cheese, I was thinking back as I was a kid and my dad went away on business. How my mom, who also loved cheese, bought a cheap electric fondue pot and would make it for dinner for me and my sister as a treat for dinner for us, and especially her, and also her love of garlic. Wow. Out in Italian restaurants, as she was Neapolitan, loved a lot of garlic and criticized if any dish or sauce didn't have enough. And like I heard about Victoria Gotti Sr. from her daughter Victoria, about how she felt garlic was not only good, but was of great health benefits and could cure many ills, I agree too. My mom would put some butter or extra virgin olive oil in the bottom of the pot to warm up a clove of garlic or three, LOL, then melt the cheese in a pot. She would take a good Italian bread loaf and slice um, it into cubes and had a set of fondue forks. And wow, it was always a treat. My dad wasn't fond of fondue, so we only had it when uh, he was away on business. Are you a fan of cheese fondue? I am. Uh, We don't have a fondue pot because we don't have any place to store anything. And um, but if I'm somewhere and there's a little cheese fondue, I'll dip something in there. I try not. I try to stay away from bread because to me the value. In bread, in terms of taste, it's not worth the carbs and the calories. This is from Suzanne. Uh, subject, Joy Damiani, who we had on on Veterans Day. Hi, Frank. I'm thinking that you've already been receiving plenty of reaction to this interview, but I did want to weigh in. Well, I'm not in any way in favor of censorship and believe in everyone's right to free speech and expression and freedom of expression. I was upset by your choice to highlight Miss Damiani on Veterans Day. Personally, I found that, as you did, that she had some valid points to make, such as regarding the U.S. alliance with Saudi Arabia and the responsibility of the U.S. towards its own citizens. But some of the other things she had to say, characterizing the U.S. as essentially the Fourth Reich and the original Nazi Germany and the U.S. military as the largest terrorist organization in the world, I found downright despicable. It also might behoove her to check some facts before exposing her own ignorance and obvious bias. So she says that the U.S. has never been invaded and opines that the military should be abolished. I supposed it might have been a bit much for her to comprehend that it's precisely because of the military's defense of our nation that we've enjoyed such a paucity pre-9-11 of attacks and invasions on our shores by foreign powers. And when you tried to push back against her statements about the U.S. never having been invaded. By citing the War of 1812, she exhibited the usual characteristic of her type by refusing to hear you and to just keep talking. In my opinion, she came across as just another smug, ignorant, U.S.-hating wokester. 
One of the reasons I enjoyed your pro- I enjoy your program so much is the wide range of topics you cover and your willingness to present all points of view from any guest willing to appear on your show. You're perfectly within your rights to have Miss Damiani appear on your program whenever your schedules coincide, of course. And if I can catch it either live or via the podcast, I'll listen, albeit with gritted teeth. But to present her on Veterans Day was, I thought, a rare but real misstep by an experienced radio professional and interviewer such as yourself, Suzanne. Well, I appreciate the thoughtful nature of that email, uh, Suzanne, and thank you for listening so regularly, just very quickly, because I did get a bunch of emails on this. And uh, I'm going to repeat some of the things that I said on Friday. But I actually think Veterans Day is the perfect time to hear from Joy Damiani. Now, I one, because as a veteran... And somebody that did something that I never did, which is put on the uniform of this country, I think she's entitled to be heard. Now, I wish, um, and by the way, most of the people that wrote to me criticizing her have never served in the military. And I thought that was an interesting irony, that so many of these non-veterans are criticizing me, saying, how dare you have a veteran on Veterans Day, because they didn't agree with some of the things that I I said. So just to repeat a couple of things I said on Friday, um, I think it's Veterans Day is the most important time for veterans to be heard, especially those that have a different view from just celebrating militarism. Now, I wish she had not used the words that she did in terms of meaning Nazi and terrorist are the two that really... Uh, struck me, and I I said to her, I think it's a little unfair, your characterization, because as soon as you use those words, it causes people to immediately close their minds and their ears and not hear anything else. And there were so many good points that she made about Saudi Arabia, about the war in Yemen, about how um, the military-industrial complex is leading military servicemen to be sent in conflicts that have nothing to do with defending your freedom. But by her using those words, which I wish she hadn't done, it caused people to not even hear heard that. Now, the difference between Joy Damiani and I in a lot of the uh, conflicts that she represented is I hold politicians and policymakers who make decisions to send our service members to places like Iraq. I hold them accountable, and that's why I would uh, criticize them, not the men and women in the military that have no say in who sends them to these various places around the world. But, uh, as I said, in my view, she's a veteran and entitled to her opinion, uh, and uh, she's done a lot more for the military than I ever have because she's actually served in it. And I like a lot of her music. I think it's got a great message. I like a lot of her writing. I think it's very thought-provoking. So, uh, I'm sorry you uh, didn't agree with that choice of guest, Suzanne. This is uh, another very respectful criticism from Jerry. Subject, things that make you laugh. Hi, Frank. You made it very clear the other night that you don't find Jimmy Kimmel funny. Why should you? You admire Donald Trump. Well, I do not. Among other things, I find himself centered, egotistical, unethical, and generally despicable. On the other hand, there are two men I never miss listening to each night. One is Jimmy Kimmel. The other is you. I love you both. 
you certainly have the right to your opinion, but I think you were a little harsh on Jimmy. I think he's very funny and right on about Trump. Wishing you the very best always, Jerry. Well, thank you, Jerry. I appreciate the fact that you listen. You know, look, I recognize that what Jimmy Kimmel does is very difficult, and I've heard him do interviews with Howard Stern and others that I, I thought he did come across as very funny. And early in his broadcasting career, I did think he was funny. Uh, when he was doing the Man Show, uh, when he was doing Win Ben Stein's Money, I thought that was all great. And some of the bits that I talked about when I, we spoke about this last week, I just thought his insistence and refusal to stop talking about Trump, even if it cost him half his audience, I thought that was incredibly petty. And I think once you do that, once you put making a political point ahead of generating an audience, even when your bosses are asking you not to, it's not something that I could relate to. Now, this was an interesting email here. This is from Evelyn in Bayonne. Evelyn in Bayonne writes, you lost a loyal listener slash fan. Now, she then writes, so very disappointed in you. You're blocked. So don't waste your time responding. To think I've sung your praises to so many. Sadly, Evelyn from Bayonne. But what Evelyn didn't do was tell me why she stopped listening. Now, the only thing I could think is she wrote this to me during... Curtis's show. So the only thing I could think is that Curtis said something crazy that led uh, her to um, uh, to think that I, I had done something against her. So sorry, Evelyn. I do like Evelyn. Um, and this is the last one I'll read. This is from Margot. Uh, subject, an original Star Trek fan. Hi, Frank. Just wondering, I could be reading this wrong, but I was a little confused when listening to the beginning of the interview with William Shatner. John Katsimatidis asked him about his experiences with the original Star Trek. His answer seemed a little dismissive to me. He said something about, why do you want to ask about something from 60 years ago? I thought it was a great question, and I really wanted to hear about it. Mr. Shatner seemed disinterested. I was disappointed. I could be wrong, and I know you might not feel say, uh, comfortable saying anything negative, um, but uh, I feel bad. I just lost interest after that first response. You know, it's funny, Margo. I thought that was also a I thought that was a disappointing response from Shatner also because I thought it was a good question that John asked him and it's one that Shatner has answered before. That being said, I have a very difficult time criticizing anything Shatnerian. A couple of things here. One is Shatner's 92 years old. Two is he has been getting questions about Star Trek every day since 1967. I get it. I get it. Maybe. And he wanted to talk about his book and he wanted to talk about space. I get it. Um, that being said, I was really disappointed in that answer, not only for what Shatner said, but sort of the, the tone in which he took it. Now, at, right after that, I think we all you know, got things off to a much better foot. But um, I was disappointed really because John is such a great guy and such a fan of Shatner. And it seemed like Shatner was being a little rude to be honest. And uh, I um, and if there's anybody you should never be rude to, it's John, uh, not because he owns radio stations or, or because, you know, he's a billionaire. It's because John is one of the nicest, kindest, most generous guys in the world. And if there's anyone that's not, that would, and he's someone that would never be rude to anybody. So for a guy that he really likes, like Shatner, kind of the same way that I do, to start off being rude to him, I thought was... Really disappointing. But look, there's a reason that so many of the people that have worked with Shatner over the years have said this is exactly the kind of thing that he does. I mean, if you read Walter Koenig's book, 
George Takei, James Doohan. If you listen to some of the things Kirstie Alley has said, you know, Shatner is a temperamental guy. Shatner's got an ego. And that larger-than-life ego has kind of is one of the things that has made me like him even more because he's almost such a cartoon character with this ego of his that I can't help but find it entertaining. That being said, it's not entertaining when you do it to somebody as nice as, uh, as John. All right, without further ado, if you did not get your um, letter read today, you can write to us at uh, P.O. Box 1777, New York, New York, 10163. Just do it to my attention, Frank Morano. Uh, P.O. Box 1777, New York, New York, 10163. Hopefully your letter will be heard on the next edition of... Other side of midnight. It's the other side of midnight with Frank Morano. Goodbyes, Julian Lennon. Hey, um, interesting situation on uh, Friday of last week. So there are only two nights that um, my wife and I go to bed together. It's uh, Friday night and Saturday night. And uh, she will frequently say that uh, it seems like even on the two nights that we get to go to bed at the same time, that I'll, I'll, I'll be doing something. I'll be out gallivanting or whatever, and we won't end up going to bed uh, both of those nights. So, you know, obviously that's, you know, makes me feel bad that she says that. So I do tend to try and go to bed whenever she goes to bed. So Friday evening, for whatever reason, after Jeopardy!, we were uh, both, uh, you know, exhausted. So we put our son to bed, and and both of us are pretty tired by eight p.m. on Friday evening. So um, Friday evening, we both go to bed at eight p.m. Eight p.m. Eastern. Now, keep in mind, m- during the week, my day is usually starting right around then. So we both go to bed around eight p.m. Eastern, and obviously, what happened? This was inevitable. Inevitable. I woke up at 11.30 at night, woke up three and a half hours later, and wide awake, wide awake. I go through my email, read a couple of articles, make a couple of notes. You know what my favorite procrastination tactic is? And I guess it's because it makes me feel like I'm really not procrastinating. It makes me feel like I'm being productive, which I like to be. My favorite procrastination topic, uh, tactic is is to write out a to-do list. And so I write out this massive to-do list, and it's got like 40 or 50 items on it, all stuff that I do need to do. But as I get to maybe the 30th item, I said, this is not a day's worth of a to-do list. 
This is not a weekend's worth of to-do This is three weeks' worth of a to-do list that you're writing out. But I can't help myself. I just keep writing it out. And so ultimately I said, all right, let me watch a motion picture here. And I turn, I go to Netflix, and I see one of the films that I've had in my queue is a romantic comedy called Love Hard. It's on Netflix. It's about a year old, and it's about a uh, a dating columnist who documents the disastrous dates that she ma- meets on a dating app, and she decides to expand her search. And she ultimately matches with a guy she really likes named Josh. And she decides to travel to Lake Placid, New York. She's from California to surprise him for Christmas. What could go wrong? Well, uh, some things do go wrong. Here's a trailer uh, to the movie Love Hard. Dating has never really been easy. But modern online dating, you're married, is even harder. But on a positive note, wow, I met someone. Oh, my God. He is so cute. Really? There's only one con. What? You've never seen him. I'm going to fly to New York for the holidays. I'm going to surprise Josh, and I'm going to get my happy ending. Josh, someone's here to see you. As of this moment right now, my disaster dating days are over. Natalie? Uh, Are you his G-word? This is a Christmas miracle. Uh-huh. Look, look, I, I can explain. I don't understand. We talked. I made sure. The photo. It had my name on it. I'm pretty good at Photoshop. Please tell me you are calling me after the most intense sex of your life. Hard to have sex when you've been catfished. But you won't believe what happened. You're telling me the guy exists and he's there? You should totally go for it. I know Tag. Let me make it up to you. I can help you get him. One week. No more lies. You're going to set me up with tech. So that's the premise. Basically, she goes to meet this guy that she connected with on a dating app. Turns out the guy used a fake picture. And so she wants to develop a relationship with the guy whose picture it really is. And it's an interesting premise. It really was. And the cast is uh, is charming. Um, it stars uh, Nina Dobrev is the female lead. And I think Jimmy O. Yang is the male lead. Uh, it was cute. And as far as romantic comedies go, it was fine. It was, uh, you know, not quite as predictable as most romantic comedies. But look, I think you have an idea of how most romantic comedies are going to turn out. It's on Netflix. It's an enjoyable hundred minutes. If you are in the mood for a romantic comedy uh, that's kind of new, one that you haven't seen yet. It's about a year old, so I'm guessing many of you haven't. It's called Love Hard. It's enjoyable enough. Is it a classic? No. But it's enjoyable. It's got cute moments. It's uh, not laugh-out-loud funny, but it's chuckle funny. Love Hard on Netflix. I I liked it. I liked it. I did. Until next hour, your influence counts, so use it. This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Now, here's Frank Morano.
everybody. This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Moreno. Uh, thank you for listening to our program. You know, it's very interesting. I am a, uh, you know, I use a smartphone. But as I was saying, I am someone that um, I, I, don't, I don't like using a smartphone. I, I really, I really don't. And if I were to ever to retire, I think maybe the first thing that would go is my smartphone. And um, I'm very curious about what um, the implication is for young people when they use these smartphones all day. And they basically grow up on these smartphones. And I, um, so I was very interested in this article that was in the Wall Street Journal. Headline, um, this school took away smartphones. The kids don't mind. Here's what happened when a Massachusetts school decided that smartphones were splintering its community. And it's a really interesting article uh, by Julie Jargon. A boarding school is basically conducting a social experiment, a smartphone ban for all students and faculty, faculty as well, okay? So that is no joke. Now, I have been someone that has, uh, you know, I've sort of been of the opinion that I think Schools should not have these phones. And I talked about this with Marlena Shivo when she was here. And, in fact, we're, we're overdue for a chat with uh, with Marlena Shivo, so we may have to have her back maybe tomorrow. But what I heard from her is the same thing that I've heard from a bunch of other people who are parents, especially of uh, middle school children or high school students which is they think that it's a safety issue and they want to be able to get in touch with, you know, with their child. And I get that. So I kind of balance that with my desire for not having children use smartphones. And I'm reading this article, and sure enough, it looks like this... uh, I I lost my internet here, so let me just try and restore this. It looks like... um, in the case of this smartphone, I mean, ban in this school in Massachusetts for students as well as faculty, it looks like it worked out really well. And after a slight adjustment period, it looks like the kids didn't seem to mind, the faculty didn't seem to mind, and it was everybody was having a, a gay old time. So I thought this was uh, one of the more interesting articles that I've read recently. And I'll read you some of the highlights as soon as my uh, internet internet gets restored here. But I think this could prove to be a great template for other schools that want to ban smartphones. Because not only do you have a problem with um, cheating, which is certainly a problem. But you also have a problem with diminishing children's attention span and children. Okay, I got my Internet restored now. 
And you, children that are not able to pay attention to what's going on in front of them. And I've always found that smartphones don't improve the situation. They make it much, much worse. Much worse. So um, that's my take. All right. Um, if you want to uh, comment um, as to whether or not you think a smartphone ban in schools is a good idea or a poor one, I would love to hear from you. 800-848-9222. That's 800-848-9222. And, you know, here's what happened. I guess my Wall Street Journal subscription has lapsed because now it's not letting me access this same Wall Street Journal article that I made notes. Your connection was interrupted. The network change was detected. That is really irritating, I must say. All right. But the, the point is, this school ba- um, banned smartphones. Okay, good. I got it now. And now it's working. And it working, it's working out really well. The school's called Buxton School, 57-student high school in Williamstown, northwest Massachusetts. It always prided itself on its close-knit community where family-style meals are eaten at round tables and students and teachers share in chores. But as smartphones became ubiquitous, faculty members say that sense of community eroded. Students often looked down at screens during meals, even in class where phones were prohibited. So teachers grew tired of this. Being gadget police, kids retreated to their rooms after class to scroll and text rather than gathering in student lounges. So they chose to ban it. But this fall, students were not permitted to have smartphones on campus. Teachers agreed not to use them. Instead, they all received minimalist light phones for essential communication. That's, I think, what Marlena mentioned when she was here, these light phones. The announcement resulted in chaos. Everyone was crying. Kids were yelling at the teachers. Parents' feedback was really mixed. Now, two months in, students have gotten used to life without social media and the drama of group texts even if not all of them love it. So you now have a situation where these students are not looking down. They're actually looking at each other in the eye. B. Sass, an 18-year-old senior at Buxton, says it's been a relief. Now she can go on strolls or study without being bombarded by notifications and the pressure to respond to texts. This is how I feel on Saturdays when I don't have my phone on. But Rachel always complains that a lot of times the rest of the world doesn't know that I'm not answering the phone. So family will be trying to reach us, uh, friends will be trying to reach us, and they, it's frustrating to them that they can't reach me. And I say, Rachel, I announce to the world that I don't use the electronics on Saturday. And she said, well, the rest of the world does not listen to your radio show. And I say, well, they should. It's my fault they don't listen. And then expects it to, to be informed about what I'm up to. So the teachers at this school say they, too, have had to adjust. Uh, math teacher Adrian St. John. I used to have my smartphone on my desk when I was teaching, and there were moments of checking in with the outside world. Now there's nothing that brings me out of the classroom. And so the school is surveying students and teachers throughout the year to assess how the smartphone ban is going. And in its first installment... Conducted in September, students said the ban has not been as bad as they feared. Teachers said students are more engaged in class. Students can still have tablets and smart watches under certain circumstances. Digital cameras are allowed. 
All students can have laptops from which they're allowed to access social media. The idea, according to one of the teachers, says, wasn't to cut off students entirely from the outside world, but to make it harder to have online drama accessible at all times from their pockets. The school wanted to make sure parents and students could still reach each other, so it supplied the light phones. The devices have basic call and text functioning, but no Internet browser, no cameras, no apps. Texting is designed to be clunky, and many students say it's slow, so they don't bother texting more than a few words at a time. Um, I think this is really interesting, and I'm curious if you've tried limited experiments with this in your own life, either for yourself or if you're a teacher, what your experiences have been like with students or for others. So we are seeing 800-848-9222. We are seeing more children and teens struggling with mental health issues. And medical experts are recommending that children as young as eight be screened for anxiety disorders. Social media and cyberbullying are major problems, and they're thought to be contributing to mental health issues. And uh, I think we've got to figure something out here. 800-848-9222. Fugazi Tom is in the Bronx. Hello, Fugazi Tom. Hey, Frank. Look, I agree with you. If you said you off, I don't know if you made a, 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 a determination. Smartphones should not be in the school at all, okay? Kids can bring them, but they have to disappear when the class starts. Put them in their backpack or something. If parents want to get hold, see what's going on soon, let them have to call the principal. I think they should get rid of all, everything you said, tablets and, and all this electronic interference that is going to the, 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 the harm the kids. Because if you give it to them, they're going to listen. Why does anything need to be in the school besides the teacher and the blackboard? Why? that They shouldn't be able to use their phone at all. It should be in their pockets or in their bags or something at all time, never to be seen. So, I mean, that's almost common sense to me, you know. Well, what we saw at this particular school, and thank you, Tom, what we saw at this particular school was the phones were prohibited during class, and students were using them anyway. So, I mean, there's bans and there's bans. So, um I I think I mean until recently there were banned in schools in New York City and you know who the the biggest co- uh, cause of lifting the ban was parents parents wanted to be able to get in touch with their children and they'd read all these stories about school shootings and they wanted you know these children armed with smartphones 800-848-9222 Joe was in New Jersey hello Joe Hey good morning how are you I'm well thanks Hey this I think this uh the school uh, banning the cell phones for the faculty as well as the students. I think that's phenomenal. And, I mean, the cell phone, uh, it, to me, it was the original calculator. It, it's a distraction. I mean, learning uh, by itself is uh, a science and an art. And I think students uh, who, are, who are not given 100% of their opportunity to learn, uh, it's, uh, it detracts from them. And I think this is a perfect way by doing this to allow students to truly 
embrace their education. I think uh, it's great. Joe, obviously I agree with you, but there's clearly a lot of parents that are concerned about uh, their child's safety in the event of an emergency or, God forbid, a school shooting or something like that. What do you say to those parents, you know, where the, they want to be able to get in touch with their child at any time in the event of an emergency? What do you say to someone like that? I think really that a system must be put in place that's basically faculty-operated or school-operated that does that for the parent. In fact, I mean, you've got to give up something. I mean, uh, this free communication is 100% of the time, anytime you want. Uh, You know, I went to Catholic school. You sat there at a desk with your hands folded and listened all day. You didn't move. But you learned, and, you know, that's the process. And I I think a system can be put in place uh, that would comfort parents that they know that uh, they've got access to the information of what's going on in school at all times. Interesting. Well, Joe, thank you. Great call, and uh, obviously I tend to agree with you. Anna in New Jersey. Anna, you were a teacher? Yes. um, I recently retired like four years ago. Oh, congratulations. Thank you. And I, I was from, um, I worked in a very affluent district. And at one point, you know, all the kids were given <clears throat> a laptop. And the thing about technology and kids, it's like, you know, um, p- adults, especially in academia, were under the impression at one point that nothing was um, really as good for the kid as an infusion of curriculum with technology because technology is all they knew. I taught in a middle school and that that was their, you know, uh, North star that they would pay more attention and learn, you know, more with access to constant technology. And I was an English teacher and my, and what I noticed was the kids, they would come in and, you know, you were, when we were observed now, you had to have the infusion of technology all the time. And because I was, you know, I had been there for so long, I didn't really listen to administration almost ever. And the kids would come in and I'd say, how many um, classes have you used your laptop in today? And they'd say, all of them. I'd say, you want to just, you know, go from the hip, no, no laptops, close them up for the day to a kid they would all say yes. Um, they're looking for a way to mm. disconnect. Mm. Um, I would get their, they would write the most, um, they keep journals. And this was back then, like I'm saying six years ago, really thoughtful uh, middle school kids would say, I can't stand social media. I can't stand my phone. It makes me insecure. It makes me feel like I don't have a real life. I'm always looking. I know intellectually that there's, you know, the fear of missing out and that people, you know, lie. But I see it and it makes me so sad. And I just, having grown up and lived without that at their age, I can't imagine what it's like for them. And they recognize it. I don't know how to put the toothpaste back in the tube. Mm, but right, I'm neither do I. That's the, exactly the problem. So what, what do you it, think it, we do going forward? I used to do things that, you know, w- would have 
you know, we get a lot of teachers that don't have tenure in trouble. For example, you know, it would be sort of, you know, I'm a parent of two children. I didn't know everything they did. I remember one um, one assignment for a homework on Friday was uh, do something completely legit that your parents know nothing about and no one else will know nothing about except the people who you're doing it with. And that was like such a crazy novel thing for them because everything – I remember one kid said to me, hey, um, it doesn't it – doesn't, it's not real if you don't take a picture. I'm like, that is crap. I said, that is just the opposite. You're curating your entire existence, and everybody knows it's a lie. And everybody was like, yeah, it is a lie. It's a lie. It's a lie. It's a lie. And uh, and so, you know, parents subconsciously are making their children chained to technology. I would say to them, you hit enter, you've learned nothing. What have you learned when you hit enter? You see something, but do you retain it? Do you integrate it? You, you, oh, it's so upsetting to me. No, same here. And, you know, I, I share your frustration for precisely the reasons that you stated. But, I, you know, I'm scratching my head about how, as a parent of someone that will have a smartphone one day, how I should be dealing with this. And I wonder, you know, as somebody that wants sound educational policy for all young people, what the best thing is, what the best policy is for schools, because so far I think it might be what this Buxton school in Massachusetts has figured out, which is to give them access to these light phones so that they're not cut off from the world in the event of an emergency, but they're not on uh, you know, TikTok all day looking at videos. Yeah, I can give you one last scary thought. Mm-hmm. Um, I would start the school year with this uh, New York Times article on my smart board, ironically, for parents to see because I would say that I don't use – I don't – I purposely don't use a lot of technology. And it was about the Waldorf School in California. I'm not sure if you're uh, aware of no, the I'm Waldorf not. School. They're private institutions. They're very expensive. They go K through 12. At the Waldorf School in San Francisco, the chair of Google, um, like every high-tech company um, at the time, you know, uh, Google, I can't remember them all now, but um, they were all huge, um, all Silicon Valley guys. They sent their kids to the the Waldorf School. No technology at all, all year, pay through 12. No technology. Wow. Because these people who were masters of the internet knew that what they invented and how they thought happened without technology. Well, that's wild. I, I like the sound of that, Anna. Anna, great call. Thank you. I'm so, hey, what are you doing? What are you spending your retirement years doing now? Open swimming, teaching adults literacy, um, you know, volunteer, you know, hiking, all that stuff. Wonderful. Well, that's great. Uh, Anna, thanks for calling. I appreciate you uh, taking the time and uh, being so thorough and insightful. And a nice phone connection, too. Is that a landline you're talking to us on? It is not. Oh, it could have fooled me. Verizon. you got to be using Verizon, then.
I am. Yeah, well, that's just a good to show. All right, Anna, thank you. Now, I'm not uh, doing a commercial for Verizon, but you can always tell the Verizon people from the AT&T people. You know, the AT&T people or the T-Mobile people, you can they're what they say. And uh, the Verizon people, uh, you, I thought that was a landline. Uh, let me say hello to Mike in New Hyde Park, who's been patiently waiting. Hello, Mike. Hi, Frank. Um, prior topic, uh, the, the Dreesen interview is always great every time you interview Oh, thanks. Me. Appreciate that. In terms of John Lennon's Imagine, I totally understand why it's so popular. In fact, iconic. He was brilliant. He's a great artist, great musician. If you scratch just beneath the surface, it's really, I hate to say it, but it's the Communist Manifesto set to music. Well, I guess that's true. You know, I mean, um, you remember that scene in Forrest Gump where Forrest Gump is talking about his uh, his trip to China and uh, he's saying uh, how they hardly ever go to church and uh, they don't have anything. And uh, he basically, you know, John Lennon is writing the song in the midst of that interview on the Dick Cavett show. He says, no religion too, you know, um, no possessions. Good observation. Yeah. uh, Good observation. Yeah. So uh, you're right. You're you're absolutely right. Still a great song, though, I must say. Thank you, Mike. 800-848-9222. Mike from Parts Unknown. Hello, Mike. (laughs) Parts Unknown. You know, I'm in Seattle right now, Frank, Seattle. Of course you are. I mean, (laughs) I'm in Myrtle Beach. I just tuned in. It's okay. Um, uh, Good subject. I I noticed, I said to friends, uh, friends uh, who are younger than me, who have young kids, and and they don't want their kids uh, that involved with um, social media. And it's one thing you said, I agree. You know, it's good to give a, a child to a certain age a phone just to communicate, but with TikTok and everything else, and and this, it really does have an effect on their on uh, their mental well being. You know, I mean, yeah, no, I I think it certainly does. I think it's you can't dispute that, Mike. Thank you. James is in Pittsburgh, PA. Hello, James. Reading, writing, and arithmetic taught to the tune of the Hickory Stick. <laughs> I you like it. that one. I, I don't think I have. Now I have. I went on a motor coach tour to, um, up in the Pennsylvania Amish country. Did you ever hear of Bird in Hand, PA, or Intercourse, Pennsylvania? Did you ever hear of Intercourse, <laughs> Pennsylvania? No, but it sounds like a, a very racy town, I must say, James. A very racy town indeed. 800-848-9222. I'm not sure if the joke's on James or me there, but whatever the case is, it is. Uh, e. Frank in Astoria. Hello, E. Frank. Yes, good I always live to regret these uh, E-Frank calls. Let's like see how this one turns out. Chose with uh, the students and the parents uh, choosing uh, not to use too much electronic devices. Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. I want to tell you, I grew up in the era where um, non-electronic uh, card catalogs or Dewey decimal systems are used. Uh, standardized testing was the uh, norm. I'm a Generation Xer where I grew up with none of those luxuries. I grew up with... Uh, public housing violence and you know this uh, gadget thing uh you know you can blame in part that uh you might think i'm dumb but general uh after y2k you know they had to advance after 1999 the the technology had to move forward i mean the the, the time consumption that students nowadays are using with tablets iphones and uh, uh other electronic devices is quite a uh, uh, amazing and quite, you know, devastating because
old-fashioned way anymore. You know that uh, educational curriculums have developed uh, in the last 20 to 30 years a little bit more uh, uh, altruistic and uh, advanced. And so, you know, this is just something uh, that we have evolved to, Frank. You might not believe it. Oh, I believe it, E. Frank. I believe it. Joe and Ron Konkama. Hello, Joe. Hey, Frank. Another great show. Thank you. Uh, I commend you. What you do, I commend what you do on Saturday. Uh, disconnect. Um, my two kids at their school, they're not allowed. They can have their phones on them, but they have to be turned off other than lunch breaks or if they're outside. But, Frank, let, let, let's go back to the 80s. It felt so good getting in your car and driving and no one knowing where you were. I think mean, everybody is so... Like, my wife needs to know where I am all the time. I think it's so, I don't know how to put it, but I, I wish I could go back to the 80s and the 70s, where it was just, you get in your car, you go for a walk, and you go play baseball outside. These kids are too much information in their face. Yeah. I know and, some people, either couples or um Parents of uh, of even adults in some cases, they have a sort of a tracking system on their phone where their their uh, whoever else is on that plan can see wherever that person is on any given time. It's like it's like they're carrying around a tracking device. I would never want somebody to see where I am at all the time. All the time. We we had that for our two kids, you know. Um... Through Snapchat, my wife follows my daughter and son, you know, when they're out and stuff. But I agree with you. Well, I, I mean, they're children. They're not, you know, you know, they're not adults. Have a good night, Frank. Hey, uh, thank you, night. Joe. Appreciate it. Um, There's a very clever email here. Catherine writes me. <laughs> On the subject of Intercourse, Pennsylvania. Of course we've heard of Intercourse, Pennsylvania. We have relations there. Pretty good. Not bad. Not bad, Catherine. Not bad. Hey, um, what you know what we're going to do in a moment? We are going to do the $1,000 Minute. Did you hear what happened yesterday? Somebody won the $1,000. So now everybody's panicked because the last time somebody won $1,000, someone else won right after that. So I got a, I got a note from our program director. Make sure the questions are hard. So uh, they don't want this to be a new trend where somebody's winning every day now. But, I, hey, I'll tell you, that guy yesterday was great. He wasn't good. He was great. Because not only did he know uh, all the questions, but he knew them so quickly. He got them. Bah, 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 bah. He ran through those questions. And these were tough questions yesterday, at least some of them. And... He had nine seconds left to spare. It was not a photo finish. That was a, I mean, that was well earned, that That, $1,000. That guy was Jeopardy level. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, All right. So we're going to do, let's see if somebody else can uh, do a repeat. If you want to be the seven, if you want to try your hand at playing, be the seventh caller right now to 800-848-9222. That's 800-848-9222. Don't make me look bad by making these questions look easy. Even if you know all 10 questions, at least take your time because I don't want to get in trouble. 800-848-9222. Seventh caller will play the $1,000 man straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. Frank Morano. 
Tracy, love this song. It's a classic, and uh, if you find yourself not uh, bobbing your head a little bit when this song plays, uh, then check your pulse, because uh, you might just be dead. All right, this is very exciting. Yesterday we had a winner in the $1,000 Minute. If you didn't hear what happened, um, you know, somebody commented to me that I sounded more exciting than excited than the... Uh, Contestant, Maybe that's true. I was excited. It's been a while since we had a winner. But if you didn't get to hear yesterday's program and didn't hear the winner, go back and listen to the podcast. You can hear it as it occurred. And that's why you should never miss it because you don't know what's going to happen. It's an unpredictable show. Without further ado, let's see if we can do it again. The Other Side of Midnight presents It's the $1,000 Minute. Answer 10 questions correctly in one minute, and you could win $1,000. Here's your host, Frank Uh, Thank you, Chris Libertini. Let us say hello to Billy in Palisades, New York. Hello, Billy. Hello, Frank. Billy, were you listening to the program yesterday? No. All right. Well, you missed a guy that won the 1000 So we now see that it is uh, quite possible. So hopefully you can be a uh, repeat winner, okay? Okay, great. All right. You know how the contest works, right? Yep. Okay. Let's get started if you're ready. What is cheese made from? Uh, milk. Who served as Donald Trump's vice president? Pence. What rock band was Freddie Mercury a member of? Queen. What actor played Han Solo and in Indiana Jones? Harrison Ford. What country did oh, the What you got it? What country did the US buy Alaska from? Russia. In football, how many points is a touchdown worth? 6. What classic written by Homer relates the adventures and life of Odysseus? The Odyssey. Where are the Spanish steppes located? Spanish steppes are located in Spain. Ah, no, I'm sorry. You were making me awfully nervous there, Billy, because I thought we were going to have a a repeat winner because you were doing really well. You got up to question eight. The Spanish steppes are located in Rome, Italy. Rome, Italy. It's uh, really an interesting um, spot, uh, right, right in central Rome. You're really well done, though, Billy. I must. Well, uh, the other two questions. Well, I don't want to. I don't want to give them to you because I want to save them for tomorrow, so that I don't have to come up with ten new questions. I only have to come up with eight now. Uh, so Frank, I'm going to. You cost me a thousand dollars, man. Well, I didn't cost it to you. Your, your knowledge, your knowledge of where the Spanish steps are, cost you the thousand dollars, Billy. I'm putting you on hold and um, uh, give Kenneth your information. Well done. I tell you, he had me nervous. <laughs> I mean, I'm rooting for him, but I'm not rooting for having to explain to management why we've had $2,000 winners two days in a row. You can just imagine that because how that would have gone. 
I'm sure Chad would have loved that. Uh, he would have assumed I'm in on it with these guys. Um, I'm coming up with questions and then giving the answers away. I'm not doing that, by the way. But uh, he did well. So th- these guys are all doing well. All right. Um, very interesting. Um, hey, you know, so my friend Rich tells me uh, when I saw him on Saturday that, you know, you can buy land on the moon and or buy stars for people. I think I always thought that was kind of cool, a little corny, but kind of cool. So he tells me how you can buy a one square foot plot of land in Scotland and be named a lord or a lady. And I said, there's got to be more to it than that. And sure enough, he sends me this website. I'll tell you the website because I think it's clever, but they're not an advertiser or anything. It's establishedtitles.com, establishedtitles.com. And sure enough, for $50, you can buy what they call the Lordship Title Pack. And you get, there's three options in terms of land. For $50, you can get a one square foot of land and you get a, a digital certificate that makes you a lord, a Scottish lord. Now, you can also spend get spend $160, get five square feet of land, and 10 square feet of land will cost you 300 bucks. And if you want a printed certificate, you get that's another $30. So each lord title pack includes a dedicated plot of land measuring one square foot, which is five or five square feet or 10 square feet, a personalized title certificate with your name or the name of the title holder, a unique plot number that will be assigned to the title holder, your digital certificate is emailed to you within 24 hours. They plan a tree for every order. I'm not sure what the tree has to, to do with anything. And a digital personalized member's handbook. So I think that, I thought this was kind of cool. I thought maybe I'd buy one for myself because I do like when people call in and say thank you, Reverend Morano, for taking my call because I am, of course, a minister in the Universal Life Church. And I think to have the title of Lord without having to do anything is pretty neat. Now, my brother is a Ph.D., so, you know, I'll greet him as Dr. Morano from time to time. And I think that's kind of cool. You know, so I thought to myself, well, maybe I can go and be uh, get a Ph.D. And then I thought, well, then I'd have to do all that schooling. And I don't really have the time to do all that additional schooling. What I'm interested in is titles that I can pick up that will take a minimal amount of work or time. And so I said, that would be nice if people have to call me Lord Frank Morano. If I have a credit card that says Lord Frank Morano, wouldn't that be nice for restaurant reservations and so forth? Um, So what this, you know, they have this frequently asked questions section on the website where there's a question, can I refer to myself as Lord or Lady? Yes, our title packs are based on a historic Scottish land ownership custom where landowners have been long referred to as lairds, the Scottish term for lord, with the female equivalent being lady. So it's really only based on a Scottish custom. It doesn't seem official to me. But uh, then the next question is, can I use the titles of lord or lady on my documents? Yes, you're able 
you you are able to change your title on documents in most instances. Um, can I buy the title pack for someone else? Yes, all we require is their name. So um, I think this is a clever gift idea. If you know, we don't do a a secret Santa here at the office, at least as far as I'm aware. But if we did, I would maybe get this for somebody. Make them a Scottish lord. It with you know, get the get them get them a one square foot plot of land. It's not clear. It looks like these plots of land are in different places, but you're basically buying this land and contributing to the preservation and protection of woodland areas in Scotland. It's not as if you can buy this land and build something on it. The intention is for the land to be kept in its natural state, and so you can't really buy this one square foot of land and build a giant tree house or something. So it, it really it's a novelty product, right? It's a fun novelty product for those who want to purchase something a little different for themselves or for friends or family. But um, I would get this for someone else. Eh, as much as I'd like the title of Lord, I don't think I would get this for myself. But, um, you know, I, I would like a more official title. Of Lord, but I thought that was interesting nonetheless. That this is out there, you know. This is it's a very clever thing for preserving land, but eh, I'm not sure it's necessarily for for me. It sounds like a Seinfeld episode. Yeah. Like like Kramer would buy a plot of land in Scotland and be sweeping it and mowing it, and right, right? Having to take care of it, right. his little land. He'd try to build a hut. Something like that. That's what it sounds like. Yeah. The first thing I thought of. That uh, that is for sure. By the way, uh, today is a very noteworthy day because today is the birthday of one of my very favorite listeners, Ellen Metzger. Ellen Metzger is not only a dedicated listener to this show, and uh, she catches up on the podcast with whatever she can hear, but whatever... Whatever she hears on the show, she posts a very thorough review in the uh, in the Facebook group. And I like it because it causes a lot of people to um, be curious about things they might not have heard. It's always very thoughtful. It's not always positive, but it's mostly positive. Whenever it's uh, critical, it's constructive criticism. It's not ad hominem attacks. So happy birthday uh, to you, Ellen Metzger. I hope all of your wishes come true today. And always, and uh, I did not know that she shared a birthday with the macho man, Randy Savage. Randy Savage, taken from us way too young, at the age of only 58, one of the greatest performers, one of the greatest actor uh, athletes of all time. He was a professional baseball player before he became a um, wrestler. And you want to know how good of an athlete Randy Savage was. First of all, I think everybody knows what an incredible performer he was as a wrestler. Uh, his athleticism, the flying elbow drop... He and he had a lot of versatility in the ring. He would do high flying moves, but he also was, especially for a shorter guy, a guy that had a great deal of strength. And, you know, later on in his career, as he got older, he bulked up a little bit. But that's what I'm saying is he he did a lot of different things in his career. But you want to know how good of an athlete Randy Savage was. He was a professional baseball player, right? And if I'm remembering the history correctly, 
he injured himself. He was a a, a, a right-handed thrower and injured himself and injured his natural right throwing shoulder after a collision at home plate. And you know what he did? And I don't know of any other instance of any other professional baseball player doing this. I'm sure there are, but I've never heard of one. After he injured his right throwing shoulder, he learned to throw with his left arm instead. Can you imagine that? Going your whole life, playing ball, throwing with your right arm, injuring it, and then teaching yourself to throw with your left arm instead, that is not only um, incredible athleticism, that's an incredible testament to your strength of will. His dad was a wrestler as well. His brother was a wrestler. I've interviewed his brother, Lanny Poffo, who was the uh, the genius. But um, he, he never made it to the major leagues, but he played uh, in four minor league seasons, had some decent numbers, uh, but then... Obviously, that was nothing like what he did in the world of wrestling. I mean, a world champion, one of the greatest intercontinental champions of all time. One of my favorite things to do, one of my favorite people to interview of all time is Jesse Ventura. And I would interview Jesse Ventura every week if I could. He's a little crazy, I know, but he's just, there is nothing that you could throw at Jesse Ventura that he wouldn't be ready to talk about. You could throw, uh, you know, a political question at him, he's ready to answer it. You throw a question about the assassination of John F. Kennedy, he's ready to answer it. Question about, you know, being a Navy SEAL, he can answer that. And I asked him one time, what's the best wrestling match you've ever seen? He immediately answers, WrestleMania three, Macho Man Randy Savage versus Ricky the Dragon Steamboat. And uh, A&E did a very, uh, they do these series of biographies, and they did a bunch of wrestlers, and I, I'm still watching the current season. I'm not really caught up. But the first season, one of the wrestlers they profiled was the Macho Man Randy Savage. And they scripted every every move in that matchup. They wrote it all out on a pad and put an enormous amount of work into exactly how every moment of that match was going to, do, going to uh, work out. And sure enough, this match was... One for the ages. And it was interesting to me when I read Ric Flair's book. As you know, Ric Flair is my favorite wrestler. When I read Ric Flair's book, so many of Ric Flair's greatest matches are with Ricky the Dragon Steamboat as well. And one of the things Flair says of Randy Savage is that he never really considered Randy Savage a great worker because in Flair's mind, and he had a, a Flair himself had a very good match with Randy Savage at WrestleMania 8, and then a few decent matches with him a little bit later when they were both in the WCW together again. But um, one of the things Flair said of Savage is he never considered him a great worker because Savage couldn't adjust at a moment's notice the way Flair could and the way Ricky Steamboat could. And reading that in Flair's book and seeing that in that Savage documentary... It really gave me a greater appreciation for what an amazing wrestler Ricky Steamboat is because Ricky Steamboat can work with these two different wrestlers at su- who have such different styles, Flair, who liked to improvise in the ring, and then um, Savage, who liked every move you know, choreographed in advance. So I thought that was really interesting. So unfortunately, again, he's been gone about 11 years now, but it would have been his birthday today. So we remember the macho man, Ed Asner, who was one of the first people that I interviewed 
when I came back to WABC about uh, two years ago. It would have been his birthday today. And uh, former governor of New Mexico, Bill Richardson, it's uh, his birthday today as well. He's uh, 75 years old. And Beverly D'Angelo, 72 years of age today. So uh, happy birthday to everybody that is celebrating along with Ellen Metzger. Uh, so I uh, hope all of your wishes come true today and always. Uh, so uh, I'm hoping you're doing something fun today. My big goal today... I need to make some progress on my annual New Year's Eve Eve email. This is an email that takes me a long time to write, uh, sometimes a week, sometimes several days. But it's not just the writing process. If you're not familiar with New Year's Eve Eve, this is a big party that I throw every year um, in Atlantic City. And it takes a lot of work to put this party together. And it takes a lot of work to write this email. And unfortunately, fortunately or unfortunately, people have so come to look forward to this email that I, 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 to live up to everyone's expectations, I write almost, I write this email like I'm writing a book, honestly. In fact, annually, I now put more work into this email than anything else I write for the year. There are literary illusions in it. There are sports illusions. There are inside radio jokes. There are callbacks to different things that have happened in previous New Year's Eve. It's really a blending of fact and fiction, all centered around an itinerary of things that I then have to book. I have to book a menu for the ball drop and everything else. If you want an invitation, I'll be happy to send you one. Just email me, frank.moreno at uh, wabcradio.com and I'll add you to my uh, New Year's Eve Eve email list. But, you know, I try I've been trying to get back into the habit of keeping a journal. The f- only thing I wrote down this morning is I need to make progress on my New Year's Eve Eve email today. And I did nothing. Nothing on it because I was so tied up with Carmine and preparing for this radio show that I didn't have a chance. Now today my aunt Camille um, is recovered from COVID, so we're supposed to go over there this afternoon and pick up some of the egg salad, which is great for everybody that enjoys the egg salad. But I'm hoping that that doesn't hinder my efforts on the New Year's Eve Eve email front. So we'll see where that goes. All right, 15 seconds of fame. If you want to be heard on any subject for 15 seconds, now's the time to call in 800-848-9222. That's 800-848-9222. This is... The Other Side of Midnight, straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano.
This is The Other Side of Midnight. Thank you, Andy B., for that delightful song. Without further ado, it is time for you to be heard for 15 seconds. It's time for The Other Side of Midnight. This is 15 Seconds of Fame. Billy in the Bronx. Victor in Manhattan. Uh, Frank, if your show is ever canceled, take comfort in the fact that an unemployed jester is nobody's fool. <laughs> Christina in New Jersey. Frank, my husband works in Staten Island. He met this man that knew you when you were 18 years old. And you used to work for Time Warner Cable. He said that you were the nicest kid ever. Well, that's very nice. Well, I, I, I didn't work there. I hosted a public access TV show, but that's nice to hear. Doug is in Manhattan. Happy 90th birthday to Petula Clark. Gary is in Inwood. Rest in peace, Tex in Inwood. You are a legend. You will be sorely missed. Roger in Massachusetts. Yeah, another version of rudeness. When we are in our shiny cocoons of anonymity driving down the highway, we behave differently than when we're in the grocery aisle with our shopping cart. Your segment on that was great. I think entitlement's part of the problem, too. Thank you. John in Astoria. Arizona's elections were rigged. Paul in Staten Island. Good morning, Frank. I was wondering if you had a chance to see the Car Shield commercial that Ric Flair is in. No! I'd love to see it. I'll check it out. Uh, Cheech in Howard Beach. History does repeat itself. What's happening today to President Trump also happened to Senator Joseph McCarthy in the 50s. Communism is alive and well in America. Robin in Pleasantville. Jackson in Queens. You know, Frank, the Confederate States of America had an educational system that believed in sacred biblical support and solid education in God. And finally, Hank in New Jersey. This year's New Year's Eve, Eve, I'm going to surprise you by trying to make fresh mozzarella instead of store-bought. Oh, that will be delightful. Good. Let me know, Hank. I'll, I may include that in the email that, this year. That's going to be exciting. Thank you. Hank has attended New Year's Eve Eve before. And you know what? He was a big hit. He was a big hit and a big help. You know, a lot of people show up to New Year's Eve Eve thinking they're going to be helpful. And sometimes... They're not that helpful. Hank actually was one of the people that have showed up and uh, was very helpful. Uh, Rosie Rosito fits that description. Janice Grossman fits that uh, description. But, uh, you know, it is what it is. All right. Hopefully, by the time we meet again, I'll have made some progress on that email. In the meantime, hopefully you have a productive day yourself. I'll be back tomorrow with something exciting. Frank Morano, good day.